You're welcome, Neil. I said you're welcome, Neil. Welcome to a very special phonathon broadcast of This Is Hell. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now, right now, to show your support for This Is Hell and WNUR, Chicago's sound experiment. And you're going to want to do that, uh, go and do that right now, because you're not going to want to miss any of today's show. Today we're talking about the pleasure activism that can happen and turn into something erotic. We have de-schooling, a concept that you are going to love. We're going to talk about Venezuela in a way that Venezuela is not being talked about in the media. We're going to give you a whole new perspective on the wall. We'll describe what democratic socialism is. And Jeff is going to break the Overton window. So you're not going to want to miss any of that. So you're going to want to go and donate right now. Go to WNUR.org, click on Donate Now, and while I'm doing this week's rundown, while I'm giving the hangover cure, and while I'm giving my monologue, it's easier than ever. All you have to do is go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now and donate. That's all you have to do. For a pledge of $10, we'll send you the new 2019 student-designed WNUR sticker, which, like all the new merchandise, as always features the new student-designed logo. So that's another thing that WNUR uh, does. It not only has a radio station that is provided for the community at large, it not only helps people learn to be broadcasters or learn how to communicate, but it also embraces the artists and the students, and they have a brand-new student-designed logo each and every year. So WNUR is giving back to the community on many different artistic levels. For 10 bucks, you get a sticker so you can display your support for WNUR on your car, your computer, your fridge wherever you want to show how much you appreciate WNUR and shows like This Is Hell. For a pledge of $25, you get the sticker and the new 2019 WNUR t-shirt. For 40 bucks, you get the sticker and the new WNUR hat featuring our new logo. For a donation of 50 bucks, you get the sticker and the newly redesigned WNUR hoodie. For giving $55, you get the sticker, the hat, and the t-shirt. 70 bucks, you get the sticker, the t-shirt, and the hoodie. $80 sticker, hat, hoodie, all featuring the new uh, WNUR design for 2019. $125, you get the uh, sticker, t-shirt, the hat, the hoodie. It's just, it, there's one huge list of all of the different premiums and gifts you can get. All you have to do is go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Now, for $150, we have a very special gift. If you donate $150 or more, you will be invited to the WNUR studios to do your own show as a guest DJ. Relive your college days, record your set, and contribute to history. And finally, for $200, you get all of that stuff and a very special, yet apparently mysterious, limited edition WNUR gift. So donate now by going to WNUR.org and clicking on Donate Now. 
Now's the time to do it because you are not going to want to miss any of today's guests. And that's what This Is Hell is all about. The guests and the kind of guests who you are not going to hear anywhere else. Discussing topics you won't hear discussed anywhere else. With perspectives that you also won't hear anywhere else. And we would not be able to do any of that if it wasn't for WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, giving us a venue for almost 23 years now. If you've enjoyed This Is Hell over the years, we owe our very existence to WNUR.org. So dig deep and give big to WNUR at WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. It's never been easier to donate no more phone calls to make if you're too high and too paranoid to call an operator and actually talk to a human being you can take your stoned ass to wnur.org and click on donate now to show your support for wnur and this is hell and we've got great reasons for you to donate during this week's this is hell on this week's phonathon special we can create political power with pleasure by making justice and liberation actually feel good That's right, activism can be stimulating, even erotic. Schools are undemocratic, teach us nothing but subordination, reinforcing our oppressive and unequal education system. So we need to de-school and now. The left of the global north is inadvertently giving cover for the West's punishing sanctions and the coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela. We'll explain what happens when the United States stops seeing a limitless freedom a limitless frontier to spread limitless freedom and now only sees walls that we've built to limit our freedom. We'll describe what democratic socialism is, what it means for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and what a democratic socialist could do in office with the power of the presidency. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin breaks the Overton window. For those who don't know, the Overton window is the range of ideas tolerated in public discourse, a.k.a. the window of discourse. So I have no idea, but I'm betting that Jeffy is going to be talking about the comments from Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and the blowback. And I'm going to get going to really pour it on thick and tell you why it's so freaking important to donate right now to WNUR by going to WNUR.org and clicking on Donate Now, where you can choose from any combination of the newly designed WNUR sticker, t-shirt, hat, hoodie, being invited to be a DJ here on WNUR and a special mystery gift for those who give $200 or more. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell, this week's live for our special phonathon edition of This Is Hell, is being broadcast from the fabulous studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now in podcast. Uh, well, actually, I know it's going to be podcast later at thisishell.com, but Alex, where are we being streamed live right now? Uh, actually, on WNUR's site, which seems to be working now. Really? Yes. Well, thank you, WNUR. That's awesome. The last, excuse me, the last couple of weeks, uh, we couldn't get the phones or my mic out over the air. So, thank you, WNUR.org. So you can uh, now hear the show streaming live online at WNUR.org as well as at thisishell.com and stream and uh, podcast later at thisishell.com in its entirety. Our guests this week are social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, anti-extraordinaire, and pleasure activist, Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Adrienne believes we can organize around passion and build political power to bring about the happy lives we truly desire. 
Through pleasure, we can imagine a far better future than the future capitalism now apparently holds for us. We can make freedom and liberation objects to love and finally bring about the beautiful justice we all desperately want. But don't take it from me. Adrienne is also author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and co-author of 2015's Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements, an anthology of sci-fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavio's Brood at octaviasbrood.com. I don't know why they're spelled differently there, but, oh, I think that's octaviasbrood.com. You can find out more about Adrian at adrianmariebrown.net. After we talk about the erotic power of activism, during our second hour, ethnic studies scholar Sujana K. Reddy wrote the essay, We Don't Need No Education, de-schooling as an abolitionist practice which appears in the collection Abolishing Carceral Society by the Abolition Collective. This is how we'll be featuring several contributions to this collection over the next few weeks, so tune in for that. Find out more about the Abolition Collective, at which Sujani is a member, at abolitionjournal.org. Sujani cites Ivan Illich's classic 1971 book, Deschooling Society, where he outlines how the educational system in capitalist societies such as the United States is one that confuses process with product, conflating schooling with the acquisition of knowledge, and mistaking the acquisition of skills with their just, equitable, and even emancipatory utilization. In other words, capitalism changes how and what we learn and why we learn it, especially for kids who are in the obligatory K-12 through education system. And what we learn more than anything is to be subordinate and contribute to our unequal, unfair, unjust, and oppressive system. But there's a way out, and it's called de-schooling. And scholars like Sujani are already participating in it with their students. We'll find out what de-schooling is all about and how it challenges the system rather than reinforcing it a little bit later on our show. Sujani is an associate professor of American studies at SUNY, the college at Old Westbury. Sujani is the author of 2015's Nursing an Empire, Gendered Labor and Migration from India to the United States. Sujani also has a podcast, What Make Makes Sense, as in dollars and cents, What Makes Sense on the History of Nursing an Empire, which you can listen to at Who Makes Sense, sorry, I'm getting that wrong, Who Makes Sense podcast.com who makes sense podcast.com following our decision our discussions on political activism and de-schooling see where is there another radio station that has this kind of content on their radio show nowhere that's where so donate by going to wnur.org and clicking on donate now right now and select from any of our wide array of newly redesigned WNUR gifts. Following our discussions on pleasure activism and de-schooling, we're returning to Venezuela with a return guest on This Is Hell. Journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. Lucas wants, uh, warns that the global left critique of authoritarianism in Venezuela serves as ideological cover for the current coup and impending dirty war pushed by Washington. Yes, it's true. There were issues with Maduro's election, but there were issues with Trump's election. And we don't hear progressives and leftists in the United States saying it's okay if some foreign nation wants to invade and overthrow our elected government. And that, unfortunately, is what is being justified by those on the left who delegitimize M- M- Maduro's election. 
which was attended by international monitors. We'll figure out what's not right about the left and the global north's reaction to what is happening in Venezuela and actually get updated on what is really happening in Venezuela when we have a return visit from Lucas. This is Lucas's third appearance on This Is Hell, including joining us here in studio back in August of 2017. Lucas is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com and reports from Venezuela. Lucas is going to, uh, do, uh, to do what is unthinkable at any other media outlet than This Is Hell and WNUR. He's actually going to talk about the deadly impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela so that humanitarian aid wouldn't be needed if the U.S. simply lifted the sanctions. But again, that is not something you're going to hear anywhere else in the media. So donate to WNUR at WNUR.org and then click on Donate Now. In the third hour of this week's special Phonathon edition of This Is Hell. We're going back in history and learn how the frontier shaped what the American spirit of the United States became as a nation. And now, with that limitless frontier finally reaching its limits, the U.S. finds itself hiding behind walls with border checkpoints everywhere as our expectations and our economy hit their limits. We'll be talking to another past guest here on This Is Hell, historian Greg Grandin, author of The End of Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall, in the mind of America. Greg is professor of history at New York University. You can find out more about Greg by going to greggrandon.com. Finally, in the fourth and final hour of this week's special phonathon broadcast of This Is Hell, the Democratic Socialists are coming. The Democratic Socialists are coming. And apparently, that scares the hell out of conservatives in the right wing. They are deathly afraid of Democratic Socialism. They are so afraid that Glenn Beck quoted an article by about uh, Democratic Socialism extensively at the recent Conservative Political Action Conference. The article, Democratic Socialism, explained by a Democratic Socialist, was written by our final guest on this week's Phonathon special, another returning guest, Jacobin Magazine staff writer Megan Day. You can find all of Megan Day's writing at jacobinmag.com. We'll be talking to her about her reaction to Glenn Beck's reaction to her writing, as well as her other articles she recently has posted at Jacobin. Bernie is running, thank God. And her latest in the new print edition of Jacobin, wielding the imperial presidency. Then we'll wrap up the whole show with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff breaks the Overton window. And like I said, I'm really going to lay it on thick in a couple of seconds here when it comes to why you should be donating WNUR right now at WNUR.org when you click on Donate Now. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? I just got a call that the stream is uh, having a lot of problems. So go to, in like three minutes, let me get this set up. Go to Mixler, M-I-X-L-R dot com slash this hyphen is hyphen hell. And uh, you'll be live streaming the show off my phone, but not taped to a studio light next to a speaker. Like last week, I actually brought all the equipment. So if you want a cleaner version of the stream, Go to Facebook or Twitter in our, to our accounts on Facebook and Twitter in like uh, five minutes. I'll have a link posted and everything will be working a little bit better from there. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is what not to do. If you're trying to avoid a hangover, so this week more than a cure, it's a preventative. German researchers, because of course German researchers, have proven that drinking beer before wine does not prevent hangovers. That preventing a hangover by drinking beer before wine is a myth. According to an article at South Africa's Eyewitness News website, many languages offer variations of the proverb, 
beer before wine and you'll feel fine. Ugh. Wine before beer and you'll feel queer. Queer weird, you know what I'm saying. Uh, but the concept has never been scientifically proved. In a formal study, the German researchers found the order in which one consumes alcohol is irrelevant to how one feels the morning after. The research team reports in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, neither type nor order of consumed alcoholic beverages significantly affected hangover intensity. So that makes this week's hangover cure. Thank you, Germans. Beer before wine, which will not make you fine, which is really more of a preventative than a cure. Who ever thought that? I just don't know who ever thought that. Who ever thought that was that would work? Uh, things rhyme. It's fun to believe <laughs> things that rhyme. Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is hell, and we wouldn't be able to be Manufacturing Descent here at all if it wasn't for the great folks at WNUR. Show your support for This Is Hell and WNUR. Go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now to donate to... Chicago Sound Experiment, 89.3 FM, Evanston. Yes, our studio is in Evanston. And if you are a listener in Evanston, support the station that is called Evanston Home for well over 50 years. I bet you know some some of your neighbors who have worked at the station or friends, or maybe you have. Show your support for the station, giving access to community members to work at the station by going right now to WNUR.org and clicking on Donate Now. If you are a listener in Evanston, support the station that is called Your City Home. NUR is an institution in your community and has had a huge impact on so many students who have passed through these studios, as well as community members like myself who owe everything to WNUR for letting shows like ours, like This Is Hell, air our subversive content for so, so long. Nowhere else are you going to find a radio station that would allow us to manufacture dissent for almost 23 freaking years, but WNUR... You simply can't say the things we say on air. Not that what we are saying is obscene or profane, but it is obscene and profane to the mainstream commercial and public media. Yes, for some of you, even your beloved NPR won't touch the stories we cover because for them and the rest of the media, there, as CNN's Jake Tapper told a U.S. WMD inspector in Iraq who said there was no evidence of WMD in Iraq, you're too radioactive. So those are the people we actively want to get their voices on this radio show. In the first two months of this year alone, we've already done a bunch of stuff that the corporate or public media institutions would never let anyone broadcast on their outlets, but WNUR will. For instance, we actually talked to a sex worker about prostitution and sex workers fight for rights. Not a prostitution prohibitionist who has no experience in the field as the mainstream media always does when covering sex work. We talked about how stark white the media truly is, and you're never going to hear that conversation in the white media. We gave airtime to climate change activists who are becoming more confrontational in a worldwide movement that's being completely ignored by the media here in the U.S. We asked the uncomfortable question of why this whole foodie revolution that brought us natural, organic, cage-free, farm-to-table food, why those demanding high-end food consumers never demanded labor-friendly food. We've told you it's the end of ice in our globally warmed world, and we are now living in post-capitalism. And you will never hear any of that in your daily farm report or your weather on the 8s or the hourly business roundup on the radio. 
but you will hear it here on This Is Hell and WNUR. We haven't forgot about the Yellow Vest movement or the devastation still being faced in Puerto Rico, and and we had live reports from both. Again, both of which have been completely and quickly forgotten by the news media. Other than what you hear here on This Is Hell on WNUR, it's the only place you're going to hear about Puerto Rico and the Yellow Vest movement anymore. We've discussed how the idea of progress is racist, and you know airing that idea on commercial or public radio is not going to get you a lot of advertisers or underwriters. But that's not WNUR's concern. That means we have the freedom here on This Is Hell to tackle any topic, any including as a guest revealed to us last month, quote, the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. And that's not something you'll ever hear in the news media's conversation on race. And while the media is busy doing everything it can to squash any sense of class consciousness in the U.S., we've had guests who explain that by doing so, by saying there is no class war or classism in the States, They've created an opening for the far right to convince workers that their grievances are not class-based, but race-based. The right and many Democrats have said there is no class war, which has pushed the farthest right-wing fringe to seek a race war. We covered one of the wars the U.S. is fighting that the U.S. news media won't cover, the war in Somalia. We explained how it's easier than ever to cheat on your taxes. Hell, it's easier than ever to get away with not filing your taxes at all. And that's really bad for anybody but rich people. We even had a historian talk about her groundbreaking research that found that black abolitionist activists, not white abolitionists, brought about the war to end slavery and not through nonviolence, but the very direct threat and use of force. But revealing a history of black power and liberation is not something the white media likes to do. Nor do they like to talk about robot sex, but we did. I mean, robot sex alone should get you to support This Is Hell by donating to WNUR at WNUR.org and clicking on Donate Now. If you want that kind of robot sex-inclusive content, WNUR cannot do it without your support. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to donate to WNUR, Northwestern's student, non-commercial, listener-supported radio station. This week's question from hell is, what's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? What's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? I'll reply is right on air during the third hour of this week's show. The winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rosworski's The People's Republic of Walmart, How the World's Biggest Corporations Are Laying the Foundation for Socialism. Again, the question from hell is, what's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won another end of the world is possible this is hell there is political power in our passions and our desire for pleasure we can actually feel good about ourselves and the world we live in by engaging in what our next guest calls pleasure activism yes activism can feel good and if political activism can actually give you pleasure then guess what people will actually want to do more Here to explain social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, auntie extraordinaire, and political activist, Adrian Marie Brown, author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adrian. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great to have you on the show. Adrian is also author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change. Changing Worlds, and co-author of 2015's Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements, an anthology of sci-fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavia's Brood at octaviasbrood.com. 
brewed.com octaviasbrewed.com so let's start with the really obvious question what is pleasure activism <laughs> great i think it breaks down in basically two ways one is reclaiming our god-given nature-given birthright of pleasure that actually all of us are wired for pleasure and it's only oppression and colonization that have made us believe otherwise. And then the second piece is actually leaning into the things that give us pleasure and, and thinking about how we bring our whole analysis into those things so that they're not compromising or not numbing us, but actually helping us feel more satisfied and content and joyful in our lives. How does colonization undermine pleasure? And what do you mean by when you're talking about colonization, you're not just talking about the history of colonialism, you're talking about something larger than that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the colonialism that, you know, got us into the U.S. and have a Western um, control over most resources in the world. But then I think there's also the colonization of white supremacy over our imaginations and over our sense of self. There's the colonization of patriarchy over our sense of equality. There's the colonization of heteronormativity. There are ways that um, our sense of self and our ability to create an identity that is about being empowered and fully alive and fully awakened, that that gets taken from us in the process of oppression. Um, you know, as a Black woman, for instance, in this country, the way that I came in and the way my ancestors, my lineage comes into this country is a three-fifths of a person able to be raped, able to be bred, able to be used as a body in any way that a white slave owner wanted. That's the legacy of, of my, the bodies that look like mine in this country. And what I'm talking about is then how do we reclaim from that a wholeness, a whole self, and actually be able to have the right to pleasure. And Audre Lorde is one of the fundamental voices in this text. I include her essay, The Uses of the Erotic, as a foundational text in the book. And one of the things she talks about is once we've actually experienced that complete aliveness, that total erotic awakening, it becomes impossible to settle for suffering. You write that pleasure activism is the work we do to reclaim our whole, happy, and satisfiable selves from the impacts, yeah. delusions, and limitations of oppression and or supremacy. Does pleasure activism then prioritize the pursuit of happiness? Does it make social happiness its goal? And is it more about an activist's individual pleasure? I guess that's three different questions. Let's just start with, does does, <laughs> does pleasure activism prioritize the pursuit of happiness? So it doesn't prioritize the pursuit of it. It almost prioritizes relaxing into it, relaxing into the idea that we get to be content, that that's not something we should have to be fighting for, that we actually get to experience this joy. And it says that suffering is not the total purpose of our lives here. It shouldn't be the way that we bond with each other, that we come together, that we only, we're only in community because of how horrific our lives are. It's saying, let's come together because we can bring each other joy and we can bring each other pleasure and contentment. How do we organize our communities and our lives around that? And how do we make sure those things that bring us contentment are not um, things that then cause a great harm? So there's a big framework in the book of harm reduction, which is something that I was taught and I'm so grateful that I was taught. It's like, how do we reduce the harms of those things that bring us pleasure and acknowledge that we live in a world that is actually really difficult, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of reasons why people turn to sex, turn to drugs, turn to escape. And it's 
sort of saying, okay, how do we acknowledge that there's all these reasons that drive people to that, that we live in a, in a, a harsh world and an unequal world? And then how from that place do we still get to claim, I, I have the right to be here. I have the right to feel good. And I don't want to cause myself harm while I'm doing that. I don't want to cause others harm. So much of this, I think, is actually about getting in right relationship with each other and right relationship with this planet we live on. So is this about inner individual pleasure? How can you have collective pleasure? Mm. That's great. That's a great question. I mean, that's one of the things I'm trying to explore throughout the book. There's a lineage of this book that is um, that goes back to Octavia Butler, who is a Black science fiction writer who has heavily influenced everything I've done. And she wrote science fiction in which, um, in story after story, the answer to most of the problems was in some way community. And it was finding those places in community where you felt like you could be whole and you felt safe to be your, in, your entire self, that you weren't compromising some aspect of yourself in order to be a part of the community. And I actually think the only way that we'll get to experience abundance and pleasure and, and collective contentment on this planet is if we start to orient ourselves towards collective pleasures. I think if we orient towards individual pleasure, we go down this path that takes us towards individual excess and individual greed. And I think a lot of what we understand as the way that capitalism works in this country is rooted in this idea that we're individuals, that we're not interdependent and interconnected on this planet. And so some people take too much and overindulge, and then others are left with not enough. So, you know, one of the things I often talk about is like, I love a hot tub. I love a good hot tub. I'm not advocating for a world in which, like, no one has a hot tub. I want a world in which everyone has access to a hot tub. And right now I live in a collective home where there's a hot tub <laughs> that we can all share. Now it's broken, so we all have to share getting it fixed. But, you know, that to me, the idea is how do we identify these things that give us pleasure and, and release and that are a balm to our systems and that make life worth living? How do we make that available to everyone? So do you think you can truly experience pleasure then individually? Is there a certain, is it a different kind of pleasure when it's a collective pleasure? Mm, I love that. I mean, I think you absolutely can experience individually. And I think a lot of people do that. And it's one of the things I've been looking at. And I do a bunch of social justice work. And what I see happen a lot is people work themselves to the bone and then they go off as individuals and have a sabbatical or take a break, take a vacation and do individual things to just nourish themselves and then try to recover, you know, come back into movement. Like, okay, I'm well rested. But if you come back in and it's like, I, I, you know, I did this. I took a sabbatical in 2012 and I came back like I'm restored. I'm renewed. I feel amazing. But I was coming back into a space where no one else had taken a break. Everyone else is so exhausted. And we don't even have a practice in place to be like, let's stagger this. Let's make sure that we're working, but that we're really sharing the load to make sure everyone gets a break. And so one of the things I think about is, well, how do we structure society so we're not even in the cycle of having to burn ourselves out completely and then step away as individuals and then come back? What would it look like to structure our movements so that they felt good and that they were sustaining the people who were a part of them? And in that question kind of led me into this study, which is like, well, what are the things that do feel good? <laughs> what can we learn from that? And so much is you have to be able to feel. A lot of us are just numbing. We're numbing our way through our entire lives. And we think that that's the best we can get. It's like work hard, be miserable, come home, numb yourself out, go to sleep, next day do it again. And what I'm positing is we have to 
begin to practice the kind of lives and pleasure and communities that we want to create so that we get that into our system and we won't settle for anything less. Earlier, you were saying that we only connect through suffering. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. First of all, can we connect through suffering in the same way that we can connect through pleasure, through happiness? I mean, I think there's so many things that can bond us. I, in this past year, have gone through losing a number of people. And actually, just last night was at the memorial services for a member of my community, Mama Lila Cabell, long-term member of the community. And it was incredible to connect with all the people who were grieving for her. And then inside that moment, I was very aware that like we're grieving for this person who brought a ton of pleasure to all of our lives. She was a vibrant human being. She was always smiling, even when she was working so hard. You got the sense that she felt blessed by the work that she was doing and that she was enjoying it. And she is another model for me, right? So it's like in that moment of suffering and grief, even in that moment, what we're really longing for and what we're grieving for is something that brought us great pleasure and joy. I don't think the two things are totally disconnected. I don't think they should be disconnected. But what I often see happen is great culminations where it's like this person has been shot. This um, attack has happened in our community. This funding has been cut. And in that moment, we come together and we are complaining and we are really, um, really continuously enforcing that our power belongs to someone else. And then we have to demand back from them our joy, our equity, our, you know, and that's the cycle that I want to break. For me, I want us to come together around the things that actually bring us joy, make us feel powerful, make us have a sense of abundance together. And then I want us to grow from that place, deepen from that place, understand that what we pay attention to grows. So if we grow, if we pay attention all the time to the things that make us suffer and the things that make us feel powerless, I think that's what we grow is a sense of there's nothing I can do. I can only grind in this way. I'll never get to experience joy in my lifetime. And I'm a testament to the fact that another way is possible, (laughs) right? Like, I'm like, oh, I know what it is to be in communities that are centering themselves around loving, caring for each other and lifting each other up. And those movements are having a huge impact in Black liberation work right now. Do you you see that reinforced in the kind of media coverage we see where they talk about the resilience of a town after a tornado. Or you hear people, like here in Chicago, if there's a big snowstorm, you'll hear people in the media, the news anchors saying, oh, it's so great when there's a huge snowstorm because you see how much people support each other by getting out of each other's way on the sidewalk or helping digging out of the snow or whatever the case is. Do you think the media, what do you think the impact is of the media constantly celebrating the resilience after disasters and the su- and the shared suffering of the public. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think that one of the, the sad things in the, in the media is that resilience gets told as an individual story and that resilience are told as like one act, one small act that someone's doing for another person. But often, and you know, I live in Detroit, Often that narrative of resilience is used to avoid actually coming through and providing support and resources to people. Um, But it's interesting you mentioned that because the story I see much more often in the media is the story of our suffering and the violence that we're doing to each other. And, um, you know, what I think of as the bad news or the crisis news. And I find that most of the people in my life listening to the news, especially this past few years, is so much more traumatizing and damaging. 
um, than it is informative, exciting, um, invigorating, making you feel proud to be a human or alive. And it's one of the things I actually pay attention to is like, what are the stories that we are co-creating and what are the stories we're telling? Are we telling stories of our own victory? And are we telling stories of the ways that we're supporting each other? And in those moments after the storm, you know, I, I look at like Puerto Rico and think about New Orleans. I think about the places I've been. It's that combination of great suffering and great recovery, recovering from harm. And I think that pleasure is one of the things that helps make us truly resilient, right? Not just rescuing and covering the ground that we should have covered by those elected officials and people that we have invested in to support us. We're just covering that ground of survival. I think we push past that into thriving when we're able to find humor and connection and community in those spaces. This is why I loved your book. Uh, so you write, uh, pleasure activists seek to understand and learn from the politics and power dynamics inside of everything that makes us feel good. This includes sex and the erotic yeah. drugs, fashion, humor, passion work, uh, connection, reading, cooking and or eating, music and other arts, and so much more. Why are politics that make us feel good necessarily good politics? Can't people who are bad people be, feel good about bad things and then that creates bad <laughs> politics? <laughs> yes, Chuck, work it. I see you working around in this question. I mean, I would say this. I feel like I've made a note in the beginning about a word about excess because I think that actually everyone does deserve to feel good. But I think that a lot of when you talk about like bad people, you know, I think a lot of times bad people are folks who have gotten twisted, like their relationship with other humans or their relationship with the planet has gotten twisted. So they believe they can take without having to return, without having to give. It's mutuality and being able to sense what is enough that actually brings pleasure, right? If you're never satisfied, you're not actually getting pleasure. You're going through the motions. You might be pleasing someone else, but you're not actually experiencing that for yourself. And that's a lot of the cycle I want to break. But I also think there's a huge section in the book about sex in this Me Too era. And a lot of that was written because it's like, so what do we do about the fact that nearly half of the species has been socialized to engage in bad behavior when it comes to intimate relationships? And it's like, you know, a lot of the move over the past few decades about my lifetime has been desexualize everything, desexualize the workplace, make more rules shut down the energy. And I find that I don't see that work very often. What I see is stuff gets repressed and then it comes out in other ways, often in harmful ways. And so one of the things I'm really looking at is how do we create the processes and structures and begin to really practice them so that bad behavior gets shut down without having to dispose of human beings. We understand like if you're swimming in the water of toxic masculinity and you become a toxic masculine person, then how do we rescue you from that water, right? Well, I think the way you do it is by beginning to practice something else. Instead of saying you should never, ever, ever feel attraction to anyone, it's more like you need to learn how to accurately communicate around attraction. You need to understand how to hear a no or a boundary, how to tell if someone's not interested, um, and how to continue the relationship. I think that happens so often where it's like you express attraction and someone's not into you, and then it's like the relationship has to be over. And so just being like, hey, I'm not interested. There's so many human beings. Keep it moving, right? We can be friends. There might be another option. And I think because masculinity has gotten so toxified, any form of rejection can lead to violence. Um, 
And that, again, it's like that when you think about bad behavior, I'm like, okay, it's the behavior, it's the harm that we want to remove. And there's a teacher, Miriam Cabo, who is a mediator. She does a ton of work around conflict transformation. Um, we had her as a guest on the podcast I do with my sister, How to, How to Survive the End of the World, last year. And she talks about, like, the focus has to be on reducing the harm and ending the harm rather than um, pathologizing human beings and saying this person is bad and, and can never be saved. Because I'm like, we're all in the system. There's a ton of us who have been harmed inside the system. There's a ton of responses and distortions to our humanity that have emerged from that. Now it's time to start to reclaim, to say, what do we want to raise up in our children? What do we want every human being to feel that they have access to? And how do we design a world that is centered around what feels good to as many of us as possible? If you are enjoying our conversation with Adrian Marie Brown, author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, please go to WNUR.org right now. Click on Donate Now and show your support for our show, for This Is Hell, as well as our station. Adrian, you write that your intention is to get the reader to recognize that pleasure is a measure of freedom. How is pleasure mm-hmm. a measure of freedom? You know, I think of it in a very tangible way. Like I think about my own body, my own experience. I'm a black woman. I'm a fat woman. I'm a queer woman. So I've got these sort of three strikes, four strikes <laughs> against me in terms of how am I supposed to access pleasure. I also wear glasses, okay? So I've got all the things that I'm like, I don't fit into any pornographic images I ever saw. I don't fit into what was ever presented on a magazine as a sexy person or someone desiring, uh, desirable. And then on top of that, we have these weights of oppression that are like, you, um, you're supposed to be in service, right? So the role of a woman in a lot of ways, what I was trained up to do is to please a man, right? Every magazine cover, here's the 30 ways to give the best blow job that a man could have. There's no, comparative articles that are like, and here's the 30 ways for men that you can actually, (laughs) none of that was what I grew up in. Right. And then being black, it's like your role is to be in service. You are an inferior person in this country. You keep adding to that as a queer person, what the way you want to make love is illegal. It is um, an abomination, right? So you add, add, add all these different oppressions. Then for me to actually wake up in my house, have an incredible bath, have an incredible orgasm, love my body and love my life. To me, it's a measure of every single way that I have rejected that socialization, rejected um, the myth of white supremacy, rejected the myth of some norm body that doesn't look like mine, and actually reclaim the truth, which is I'm a miraculous human being and I'm wired for pleasure and I deserve to feel amazing. And when I'm happy, it's good for everyone else. It really is. And so that's one of the you know, for me, I look at it in my life that way. And then I look at things like the Kambahi River Statement, which posits the idea that if Black women are free, everyone else would necessarily be free because of structures of the country. And I love that idea that as applied to pleasure, if every Black woman, if every fat woman, if every non-binary person, if every trans person, if every person with a disability, if I knew that all of us had access to total pleasure, to feeling good in our lives, it would mean that our entire society had structured in a way that now abundance was available for all of us. And that's what I'm fighting for. You write that many people are orienting toward and around radical pleasure in this political moment. Why? What about this 
particular political moment, what about it is leading many people to orient toward radical pleasure? Is this in reaction to <laughs> what we're seeing as like a kind of a, an epidemic of depression? I mean, I think that right now there's a very, um, for me and the communities I'm in, there's a sense of like, we have to hold each other tight through this moment. Um, and I think we have to make sure that we feel good and that we stay connected to what feels good because this is a really horrific time. Having a racist white supremacist president um, who's also um, heavy on misogyny in office um, and having an administration that's surrounding and supporting that, having the Republican Party who won't really ever pull themselves away from him. Um, being in this political moment and such a shameful moment for the country in terms of what's happening internally, but also how the rest of the world views us, um, it could be easy to become depressed and to feel like nothing matters or all the work that we've been winning on and making advancements on is being pushed back. And I take great... Um, inspiration from indigenous communities, right? Because I'm like, well, this time is so hard, but then it's nothing compared to what indigenous communities have had to survive and live through on this land. And one of the interviews I have in the book is with Dallas Goldtooth, who's part of the Indigenous Environmental Network and was a major organizer at Standing Rock. And I interviewed him because all the videos that he was posting throughout that time, he was posting such informative stuff, but he was also posting hilarious videos and pictures of folks sledding and having a great time and showing what the community felt like and that they were actually in a lot of pleasure and joy with each other as they, and that was one of the ways that they were able to sustain themselves through winter in this freezing cold setting. So to me, I'm like, oh, it's, it's actually a fuel. It's a, another kind of nourishment that we need. I also think there's a way that's like our bodies are the thing we have, right? Like, Everything else will come and go, but our bodies are the space that we have. And so learning how to, how to actually redirect your attention and redirect the experience of your life from feeling crappy and overwhelmed and depressed to feeling content and joyful and satisfied, to me, it's a freedom, right? I don't tune into what the president is doing and saying all the time. I know most of it is not even true. And I'm experiencing a huge amount of contentment and liberation in my life. And I'm really focused on and supporting movements that are doing work that makes me feel content and satisfied. I love supporting the movement for Black Lives. I love supporting the majority. I love supporting BYP 100. I love that they are in the struggle, on the front lines, but dancing with each other, singing with each other, making Black Joy mixtapes. Like when we make decisions, we put on 90s R&B and we dance together, right? It's like, this is an important time to be cultivating Black Joy in the face of oppression and remembering that we're not alive to suffer, to fight, to struggle. We're alive to love each other, to build community, to evolve. How can pleasure activism, and I know that you kind of touched on that, on this in your last answer, but how can pleasure activism better prepare us for the changes we're already facing on a warming planet? How can it help us better prepare us for climate change? That's amazing. You know, I I really think that, um, I don't know about you, but for me, when I really look at the climate report, it's easy to get really overwhelmed. Like, why go on? You know, why continue? And one of the things that inspires me is that I come from a lineage of people who, you know, lived through slavery. They're the people who survived slavery. And four generations into slavery, there was no end in sight. And it felt like this is what it's going to be. There's no reason to hope. And those folks still found love, found marriage, ran away together, you know, 
raised children together, taught those babies how to read, made sure they laughed. Like you keep going. You can't actually foresee the whole future. And I think preparing for apocalypse means preparing for deeper intimacy. Like I think a lot of individualism is what capitalism is all about. Is everyone has to have their own. And when everyone has their own, there's actually not enough for everyone, right? There starts to be this accumulation of greed. I think the kind of collectivism we need is going to rely on us being able to be in authentic intimacy, right? I have to actually be able to say, Chuck, how are you feeling? And for you to be honest about it. And that requires intimacy. For a lot of people, telling the truth about how they feel in, the, in real time is harder than laying down and having sex with someone. And I think the things are so connected. I'm like, what does it mean to get naked? Truly naked. What does it mean to actually be seen? What does it mean to actually say, I want this. I don't want that. Don't touch me like this. I'm triggered right now. This is what's happening, right? And I think there's not enough people right now who can just feel and express their feelings in real time, much less move towards pleasure. But I think that the, the future that I'm thinking of, I'm like, if we're all, even if it's just like, look, we're on the road, you know, <laughs> like we're trying to find water, we're trying to do other stuff. I want to be with people who I can trust to feel their feelings and with people who will crack some jokes and make it a good time. Wow. I really, I really loved your book. We are speaking with social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, auntie extraordinaire, and pleasure activist, Adrienne Marie Brown. She is author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Just a couple more questions for you. And I wanted to reintroduce you there because this is going to be completely off topic from everything else, kind of, that we've been discussing. But I found this fascinating. You write, all organizing is science fiction, that we are shaping the future we long for and have not yet experienced. How is organizing, how is activism viewed differently when we see it as science fiction? Yay! I love this question. Um, yeah, so a few years ago, Walida E. Marisha and I put out the book Octavia's Brood, and this was one of the core things that we realized as we were pulling it together. It's like, oh, we think of activism as this like very serious engagement. You know, you read Marx once a year, you watch Malcolm X, you know, like you do very serious things, you think serious thoughts, and um, but what's actually happening is this, you know, when you're an activist or an organizer, you're saying, I am going to take responsibility for shaping the future. And when I'm like, oh, well, shaping the future, now you're talking about science fictional behavior. It's answering the question, like, what if this was to happen? Or if this goes on, what will happen? And to me, it all gets much more exciting when you think we are actually in this imagination battle, that we live inside a world that someone else imagined was going to be correct. They imagined white supremacy was going to be the way they imagine that black people were terrifying. They imagine that women were inferior, but it's all imagination. It's not true. And if we want to have a different world, we have to imagine something else. And I love that the work of organizing actually matters more if it's rooted in vision. So one of the things that I do and one of the things that we have done many times, I actually just came back from doing a series of workshops in Northern Ireland. We do these workshops where we ask people, what is the world that you actually want to, to exist in, that you want to create for future generations, and how will we know when we've achieved that world, when we're actually living in it? And so often the answers to that are not um, everyone will be driving a green car, but it's about how we will feel, that we'll feel free, that we'll feel safe, we'll feel that our children could go out and 
be in the street and we know that there's a million people with their eyes on them, loving them, caring for them, not trying to turn them into consumers, but trying to focus on how do they grow and be the best that they can be. And Gloria Anzaldúa is a teacher in our lineage, and she said that nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our head. And so a lot of what we're doing with Octavius Brood, a lot of what we're doing with the science fiction and visionary fiction work, you know, really thinking, what are the stories we tell over and over again that reinforce the current power dynamics? What are the new stories we have to tell if we want to remind people that they're actually born free and that freedom is a given? We're born to feel pleasure. Pleasure is a given. We're born to be in community and interdependent. Individuality is a myth. So that's it's just broken. <laughs> One last question for you. We've been speaking with author okay. Adrienne Marie Brown. She is the author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. She's also the co-editor of 2015's Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements and anthology of sci-fi written by organizers and visionaries. You can find out more about Octavia's Brood at octaviasbrood.com. You can follow Adrienne on Twitter at Adrienne Marie, and you can find out more about Adrienne at adriennemariebrown.com. Net. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. And I think that's the category okay. that this might fall in. One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your book and during your response about science fiction is that science fiction is always seen, uh, not always, but it's often seen as utopian, like in the kind of Star Trek mm-hmm. utopian world, even though it's militarized for whatever reason, but in the Star Trek yep. utopian world, uh, you know, it's always seen as something that's uh, unreachable. And so often when you think about activism and organization, activists and organizers are often labeled as being too utopian, being too impractical, not being pragmatic enough. What happens when activism and organizing isn't utopian? You know, I think that we get, um, when it isn't utopian, I find that it's fear-driven. And fear doesn't get us where we want to go. It doesn't liberate us. Fear actually makes us smaller when what we need to be is growing in deep relationship with each other. Fear makes us competitive with each other. And I think once we start competing with each other, this is how we end up with some of what we have in our movements right now, which is everyone is fighting over dollars instead of fighting for freedom. Um, I'm actually in the midst of writing a piece right now about this for those in philanthropy because I'm like, I really want to completely transform how the work of organizing gets funded and how it happens. Um, But one of the things I'll say is if we you know, when we were writing Octavia's Brood, one of our things was there's never a utopia without a dystopia that's supporting it, right? You don't get heaven without hell. You know, you don't get the, the white tower without a bunch of people who are actually building and supporting and, and working that. It's one of the binaries that we hope to bust out of. How do we create something that's not utopian and it's also not dystopian? but it's a future that is compelling and that we actually want to be a part of and work inside of, right? I always say I'm not really that interested in the utopian version of things because I'm a problem solver. I'm a Virgo oldest child. I like figuring stuff out. But I want to be in a collective or community of people that are like, we all take responsibility for the future. We're all going to figure it out together. That's what I'm up to. 
Adrian, I really, really enjoyed your book, and I cannot thank you enough for the conversation that we're having this morning. We have been speaking with author and pleasure activist Adrian Marie Brown. She wrote the book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. You can find out more about uh, Adrienne at her website, adriannemariebrown.net, and you can follow her on Twitter at Adrienne Marie. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Have a really good one. And tell all your folks out there to have a great day. Thank you very much, Adrienne. And if you enjoyed the conversation we just had with Adrienne Marie Brown, and that's not a conversation you're going to hear anywhere else about pleasure activism and the erotic nature of organizing, you're not going to hear that anywhere else. But here on WNUR and here on This Is Hell. So show your support. Go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now during our phone You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show, Prove Us Wrong, This Is Hell, and as God's Favorite Radio Show, that's another reason to donate to WNUR by going to WNUR.org and clicking on Donate Now to appease your God. It's either that or a human sacrifice, or worse, actually having to go to church. So show your support for God and his or her favorite radio show right now by going to WNUR and clicking on Donate Now. We've got great gifts for you, newly redesigned WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, hoodies, as well as the opportunity for you to be a DJ here on WNUR. Go to WNUR right now and click on Donate Now. School sucks, and not in the way you already know it sucks. It sucks in so many more ways than you can ever ever imagine. It teaches you nothing other than how to be subordinate and oppressive and unequal system that it trains you to reinforce. But maybe there's a way we can make school something else, something that challenges its oppressiveness and unfairness. We'll learn all about de-schooling in a few when we talk to ethnic studies scholar. That is not ethnic studies scholar. I made a mistake there. Writer and educator Sujani K. Reddy, who wrote the essay, We Don't Need No Education, De-Schooling as an Abolitionist Practice, which is part of the collection Abolishing Carceral Society by the Abolition Collective. This is how we'll be featuring several contributors to this collection over the next month or so, so tune in for that. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1946, 73 years ago, 33 people were crushed to death and hundreds more were injured. When crowds got out of control at Burnden Park Stadium in Lancashire, England, during a soccer match between the Bolton Wanderers and the Stoke City Football Club. Given that both those teams sucked for about the last 70 years. This was likely the last exciting match between Bolton and Stoke City. The game was part of an elimination tournament for the FA Cup. A cup goes the winner of an all-British soccer tournament, which was being revived after a six-year hiatus due to the Second World War. Of course, real football doesn't stop for something as trivial as world wars. The stadium and the field, still in bad shape from wartime neglect, were overrun by some 85,000 fun-starved fans because no matter how hard they tried during the Second World War, the British government did a horrible job at rationing fun, although fun ration cards have become very collectible. 20 minutes before kickoff, the authorities were forced to close the entrances. At that point, fans began climbing in over the fences without paying because the British are a very civilized people and not the hooligans the world makes them out to be. The crowd 
got so chaotic that some lucky spectators were literally pushed out the other end of the stadium after the game finally began. Two metal barriers collapsed on top of some spectators, crushing them underneath. Referees halted the game while bodies were pulled out of the wreckage. The dead spectators were laid out next to the field and covered in their own jackets, and the game was started up again. Because real football isn't stopped by the deaths of a few fans. The match ended poetically in a scoreless tie. In Rotten History, 1967, 52 years ago, a TWA jetliner carrying 25 passengers from Pittsburgh to Dayton, Ohio, was making its landing approach toward the Dayton airport when it plowed into a small private Beechcraft airplane operating in uncontrolled airspace. Uncontrolled airspace? Uncontrolled airspace? No wonder there was a crash. That airspace wasn't under control. What kind of chaotic, anarchic airspace was this plane flying in anyway? The Beechcraft was pulverized, as were critical parts of the jetliner, which went into an uncontrolled dive and a crash and burn. All people aboard both planes were killed. Investigators later concluded that the airliner had descended from cruising altitude too fast for its pilots to see the small plane drifting into its flight path. But me? I'm blaming it on uncontrolled airspace. And to be honest, I think this should be declared a national emergency. In Rotten History, 1976, 43 years ago, at the ski resort of Cavalese in the northern Italian Alps, a cable car carrying 44 Italian, German, and Dutch tourists was making its way down from the top of the mountain. Uh-oh, this is not going to end good. When the steel cable snapped, yikes, the cable car fell some 700 feet, hitting the mountainside, and it was immediately crushed by the three-ton overhead carriage assembly that landed on it. One passenger, a 14-year-old girl, somehow remarkably survived. The other 43 people, including 15 children, were all killed. Though inspectors had recently found the cable mechanism to be in good shape, an inquiry after the accident found signs of severe stress on the cables, which was attributed to lack of proper maintenance and unsafe operation in high winds. So apparently the safety inspectors weren't doing a very good job if they were doing their job at all. A safety mechanism would have shut down the uh, cable car in dangerous weather, but it had been turned off. Four officials of the Cavalese Resort were found guilty and sent to prison, but I'm betting if it happened here in the States, we would have gotten off the fine because that's how we do business here in the U.S. 22 years later, in February 1998, another 20 cable car riders at the same mountain were killed when a hot-dogging U.S. military pilot flew his NATO jet too low, severing the cable and sending the cable car crashing down the mountainside. Which brings me to this public service announcement. Never take the cable car at the Northern Italian Alpine Ski Resort Cavalese. And that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. If you enjoy Rotten History, or even if you don't, go to WNUR.org and click on phone or click on Donate Now to donate to Chicago Sound Experiment and get any or all of an array of gifts we have for you, including our newly redesigned 2019 WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, hoodies, or you can be a DJ yourself right here on WNUR. And we have a mystery special gift for big donors as well. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate now, right now, to show your support to the station and our show, This Is Hell. Maybe you won a prize during the question from hell. Show your appreciation by donating to WNUR at WNUR.org. And click on Donate Now, whether or not you've actually received your prize yet. Bear with me. And this week's question from hell is, what's the first thing you're going to buy from the nationalized Walmart? What's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart. All replies read on the air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Lee Phillips and Mike- Michal Rosowski's 
the People's Republic of Walmart, how the world's biggest corporations are laying the foundation for socialism. Again, the question from hell is, what's the first thing you're buying from the socialized, nationalized Walmart? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's phonathon special, schools are undemocratic, teach us nothing but subordination, reinforcing our oppressive and unequal education system. So we need to de-school. And now, the left of the global north is inadvertently giving cover for the West's punishing sanctions and the coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela. We'll explain what happens when the United States stops seeing limitless frontier to spread freedom and now only sees walls that we've built to limit freedom. We'll describe what democratic socialism is, what it means for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and what a democratic socialist could do in office with the power of the presidency. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin breaks the Overton window. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online. We'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Is Alex Jerry. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now to Chicago Sound Experiment and choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, and hoodies, or do your own show on WNUR or get all that in the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now, now. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. School in the United States is not the inquisitive and challenging education it promises to be. Instead, it is oppressive and unequal and reinforces an oppressive and unequal system. Here to help us understand how bad school can be for society and how we can do something about it by de-schooling, writer and educator Sidney Reddy wrote the essay, We Don't Need No Education, De-Schooling as an Abolitionist Practice, which is part of the collection Abolishing Carceral Society by the Abolition Collective. This is how we'll be featuring several contributions to this collection over the next month month or so. So tune in for that. Welcome to This is Hell, Sijani. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great having you on the show. When I was reading your essay, a news story popped up, and I wanted to ask you about this and how this might reflect on not only your writing, but the way that you feel about education or or reveal something about the kind of education that we do have in the United States today. The story's headline was, New Data Shows 1.7 Million Students Attend Schools with Police But No Counselors. What does that say to you about where schooling in the U.S. is today? You know, it says a lot of things, and um, it's, a, it's an interesting opening to the, to the essay. I think one of the things that I talk about in that piece is the relationship between schools and jails, schools and prisons, right? And the collection that my essay is in, Abolishing Carceral Society, is also really, you know, based on a movement to abolish prisons. And so... My my contribution is to link that thought to questions around schooling. And so the, the sort of fact that there are schools that have more police and no counselors, you know, we like to think of school and prison as separate. I mean, we like to think that we'd rather go to school than prison. And of course, there are whole populations, you know, we, we can talk about the cradle to prison pipeline and there are whole populations who get channeled towards prison and others who end up in school. But I think one of the things that we have to remember is that school itself can be a punishing place, the place where people are 
taught discipline more than they are taught freedom and a place that's meant to control as much as it's, you know, we like to think of it as a place we, I don't even know who I'm talking about when I say we, but there is a myth that school is a place for bettering yourself, right? Rather than for punishment. And I said, that's for me, the first thing that I think of when I think of police in schools instead of counselors is the reinforcement of that idea that school is meant to control. Part you, of the discipline. Um, you use the term throughout your essay, and I want to make sure that we discuss it now, that we make sure that people understand the term now before we uh, go on any further. What do you mean by post-civil rights America? Oh, so, you know, there's one of the central kind of national myths in the United States is that we had a bad time and then we had a good time is the short, is the short answer for it. And we had a bad time or we did a, we did a bad thing, right? The country, the nation, the founders with um, slavery, oftentimes indigenous genocide and conquest is even left out of that. But um, with the enslavement of people from Africa and then, you know, we had um, the Civil War, but more recently there's this kind of upholding of a sanitized, domesticated version of the civil rights movement that um, that focuses on gaining the right to citizenship and voting and things like that, rather than decolonization and, you know, an anti-capitalist kind of movement, some things that were also part of the Black liberation struggle, but that are left out of mainstream narratives. So when I say post-civil rights, though, I'm pointing to the period of time, let's say after the 1960s and the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the... Um, all of the kind of civil rights legislation. And then this idea that after that, the slate was wiped clear and it was equal access to everyone. And now it was up to you to make it. And then that narrative kind of ends with the election of Obama as president. And then sort of like, see, anybody can be anything. And so post-civil rights is a period of time after the formal kind of legal putting in of certain kind, end of, of Jim Crow segregation, basically. And this idea that that was all that needed to be done. You write that, that, yeah, it does. Uh, you write that my analysis of obligatory education takes its cue from Ivan Illich's 1971 book, Deschooling Society. Illich outlines how the educational system in capitalist societies such as the United States, and indeed especially in the United States, is one that confuses process with product, conflating schooling with the acquisition of knowledge, and mistaking the acquisition of skills with their just, equitable, and even emancipatory utilization. Why shouldn't we conflate schooling with the acquisition of knowledge? How are schooling and the acquisition of knowledge not one and the same? Okay. So another thing I say is that um, it, it confuses process with product, right? So I think in some ways, the easiest way to kind of um, summarize that, that thought is to say that just because you go to school doesn't mean you know anything more than anybody else. I mean, you're given, a, like, or just because you have a degree doesn't mean that you know anything more than anybody else. It means that you've had time and space potentially to acquire knowledge. Like, that is set aside, but it doesn't mean that you actually did it. It doesn't mean that it was actually offered to you. It doesn't mean that the knowledge that was offered to you was the knowledge you needed. And it doesn't mean that you were taught it in a context where it was connected to the necessities of life, to the communities that you come from, to the struggles that you're surrounded in. In fact, oftentimes it's disconnected from those things. So, you know, why shouldn't, I mean, so it's not like people don't learn in school. I want to, you know, or that, and I'm not against knowledge or learning. And I'm not, you know, I'm against schooling in capitalist society. There are potentially other 
ways of, of, of doing school that wouldn't fall under my critique. But what I'm trying to say there is that school and knowledge shouldn't be confused. I mean, I have gone to some crappy, I've gone to and taught in some underfunded, under-resourced public institutions. I've also gone to and taught at some very elite private institutions. And the difference differences between those are a matter of resources and access, not a matter of knowledge. You write that Illich points out how the educational system in a capitalist society is geared toward class stratification and the maintenance of class privilege through capitalist exploitation. Where do you see school teaching, if you will, capitalism? And is that teaching overt or covert? So it's not even necessarily that school teaching is capitalism, although I do think that the capitalist system is naturalized in the way that the sort of ways of thinking, not just in school, but in our society in general. Um, but for me, what I meant when I was talking about that, and I think what Illich is most, or Illich is most specifically pointing to, is that you go to school, like, or the idea is that you go to school to get a, a to get a better job. Like you're in college to become a manager, not a worker. That school actually stratifies people by class through the ways in which it channels people. So you, if you go to a school that's full of police, the likelihood of a small infraction that would maybe give you like an after-school detention at an elite public school would potentially land you in jail and then put you into like a, a pipeline that would make your chance, like reduce your chances. Whereas other people are going to, I mean, the thing about public school in this country is that it's not really public to the degree which it's based on private property, right? And property taxes. And so that you live in a rich area so that you can go to a good public school so that you have better chances. And so that's what I mean by capitalism in school. I mean, that school is a tracking device where some people are tracked in a way that they have access to more and more opportunities within the system. It's not an accident. Oftentimes, most of my teaching, although not all of it, has been at the college level for undergraduates. And, you know, we'll sit there and we'll have all these aha moments. How come nobody ever taught me about Chinese exclusion? How come I never knew about, like, all these anti-capitalist critiques? And I was like, because now that you're an undergraduate in college, you have an investment in the system. You're here to get a better job. You're here to like make a decent living for yourself. And I'm not critiquing those things at all, that desire or that necessity. But if you were taught that when you were from, from day one in kindergarten, maybe the whole world would be different. Maybe all your choices, if you and your classmates were taught those things and had that knowledge, but that's not the way it works. You write, school, re- yeah. school remains the primary place where the myth of meritocracy as a means for upward mobility remains lodged. For most, schooling still represents the means of liberation within a system that nevertheless attempts to institutionalize us and our ambitions. What happens to our ambitions when they are institutionalized? Because we're told here in the United States that anybody can do anything. So how is that anything limited how are our ambitions, what happens to our ambitions when they are institutionalized? Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, illustrates in that book, Deschooling Society, which is, you know, I, I encourage people to find it. It's in some ways it's outdated because it was written um, and published in the early 1970s. In other ways, it's right on. And one of the things that it's right on about is that school is probably, it's either school or prison, I guess, in, in our current in our current climate. Are the institutions that teach us that we are clients, that we have to go to an outside source, something outside of our community, something outside of us to get what we need. 
So we have to go to a hospital for healthcare. We have to go to school for ed- for knowledge. We have to go, you know, well, no, I don't. No one chooses to go to prison, but let's stick with the school example. We have to go to school to get to get knowledge, and that's the institutionalization of our ambition as well as our sense of self. It's a it's a form of subordination. In a lot of ways, what de-schooling society, the first step in de-schooling society, is not dropping out of school. <laughs> the first step is learning to revalue ourselves and the forms of knowledge that we already have in our communities and in our own in our own families and in our beings, and to understand those as part of what our access to resources are, and to understand those as part of what we are able to grow, and then to put school in its place, to put school in its place as a tool that we can choose to use in ways that we want to, because we're not yet in a place in our society where we have the revolution that we need or we have the social movements that are, that are overtaking and overturning society. But in the meantime, we have to start in this really fundamental way where we stop outsourcing ourselves to institutions. And school is the very first place that teaches us that we have to go outside of ourselves to get what we need. You write the diversity that exists in schools and colleges has also been the outcome of our insistent, persistent demand as these demands meet the dominant imperative to create and manage a multiracial middle middle class. Is there anything wrong with that being the focus, the goal of education to uh, create and manage a multiracial middle class? Does that change the school's focus in a way? Well, I mean, the first, just to define what I mean by create and manage a, a multiracial middle class, that goes back to the post-civil rights thing. So I come from, um, you know, it's really only after that moment, right, with the end of the formal end, the legal end of Jim Crow segregation in one form, right, which is a form of separate institutions. And that coincided on a global scale with decolonization, right, the wave of decolonization across Asia and Africa in the second half of the 20th century. So those two things are kind of of a piece. We're used to thinking of things only in terms of the United States, I think, um, when it comes to that. But it was really a global moment. And so in a lot of ways, desegregation in the U.S. was the form that decolonization took, right, which, which is part of a global movement. But then one of the things that happened both in the third world and in the U.S. after that was that you got more and more formerly colonized, formerly segregated people into positions of power and or into managerial positions, right? So I come from a family who migrated from India into the middle class in the United States. And so we were part of that, right? And so it's not that all of India, India has the highest rates of poverty in the world. And it's not that all of the sort of, you know, black and brown people in the U.S. who are actually not benefiting from having a multiracial middle class. It goes back to an example of how we can justify the existence of ongoing oppression and, and, and poverty and environmental racism by the fact that some people in the system can have made it, quote unquote, and making it is merely an economic thing. So the problem with, with creating and maintaining a multiracial middle class is that it's actually a justification for capitalism. It's not its undoing. And that those of us who are part of the middle class are ultimately acting within capitalism, not necessarily against it. And that the fact that we exist becomes an excuse for others to not for, for, for not redistributing wealth, truly. It's not a form of redistributing wealth. It's a form of letting some people in so you change the color and composition of the ruling class, but not the fundamental structures of society. 
And you mentioned the warnings issued by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney, um, who uh, write in The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, and writing by a past guest on our show, Robin D.G. Kelly, in his introduction to Black Study, uh, Black Struggle. And you explained that part of their point is quite basic, actually. Critics whose critique demands more of the institution than it currently gives continue to justify that institution's existence and implicitly, if not explicitly, empower it as the necessary site of redress. The system of higher education needs us to believe in it, and there is a way in which our protests can profess willy-nilly a kind of belief. In this sense, critique leads to complicity. Is reform then complicity? Does tweaking the system reinforce the system? Are, are the positive aspects of reform negated by the greater power reform gives to the institution? I don't think necessarily. I don't think there's like this harsh divide and that we have to have, you know, reform or revolution or something like that. And I do think that there are ways in which um, making demands or not even making demands, changes to the systems that exist are helpful in both the short and the long term, depending, but not all of them are, right? So we have to kind of assess them for how much they open up spaces or possibilities for freedom and for people to have more autonomy and make better choices. Um, So I'm not necessarily against all reform, but we have to be aware that it goes back to that question where I was saying that school teaches us to be a client. And this is really a continuation of that. It's like the difference between making a demand to an institution and making a demand to, to your care, primary caregiver when you're young, like, you know, mommy or daddy, can I have this? Or you need to change so that this happens. You know, the school needs to include me. And, you know, when our demands are separated from larger social movements and become just about, I think that's the key, actually. When our demands are separated from larger social movements and become just about making demands to an authority who already has power over us, we do reinforce that authority because we say you're the one who can give it to us. And rather than doing that, if we're part of a broader social movement, then our demands are part of a larger, a larger ask, a larger movement for change. And also, you know, we have to think to ourselves, how, how do we not ask for things? How do we make them? That's really, how do we create them? Yeah, that's a really how do we, like, how do we sort of devalue the institutional authority? And that is, I think, later what I talk about in the piece. How do we sort of not give it the power it has, but still use the resources it offers? Yeah, it's a point that Rada D'Souza made on our show last year. She was talking about uh, the shortcoming of human rights being that we're asking for a right to clean water instead of just demanding clean water and how that can become an obstacle to actually getting what you want. So now we've gotten to the point where you write, in the face of all of this, I found myself calling not only for us to abolish the prison industrial complex, but also to de-school society. So what do you mean by de-schooling society? I mean that our demands have to be comprehensive and understanding that, like, undoing the institutions of capitalist society, and school is one of them. School is the bit, you know, if we think about what has shifted in the U.S. economy over the, you know, since, like, let's call it the post-civil rights, post-World War II, like, whatever period you want to, we want to talk about it, one of the ways that people talk about that is a shift to a service sector economy. The two biggest employers, I think, and you can correct me on this, within our service sector economy is healthcare and education. Right. That's like where a lot of a lot of sort of people are employed. This is a part of capitalist society. I mean, the kind of onslaught, the neoliberal onslaught on schools, charter schools, privatization, like the sort of you know, attack on the humanities, all of these things are a sign of where capitalism is at. 
school in the form that we know it has always been, and this is the system of education, right, in, in capitalist society, has always been about disciplining and managing us for capitalism. And so, you know, if we're thinking about ending prisons, we have to think not as, as schools as the antidote to prison, but as the accomplice. And that goes back to the first thing you asked me with all the police in the school, right? The two are actually part of the same problem, and the problem is capitalist society. And so you can't just undo one without undoing the other, because they're actually two sides of the same coin. That's how I see it. You write how you... And I think, I think the pro- I just want to say, like, I think this sort of real stickler when I say that, or when anyone says that, is this idea that somehow I am also then negating um, people who are interested in learning, in knowledge, in bettering themselves, in like kind of helping their communities. And that's not at all true. And that goes back to the point I was saying where we don't outsource ourselves to institutions. We use them to our own, to our own benefit. And so we do want to learn. We do want to take the knowledge that we have. We do want to sort of struggle together to create better lives. School can be a part of that as long as we don't subordinate ourselves to it. We subordinate it to our, to our project. And you're right, I've already said too much and must leave the rest purposely vague because publicity is precisely not the point. So is de-schooling a covert project and is it covert uh, and is it any more covert or overt than the education that we get, the teaching, the training of capitalism? So what I meant there was that, you know, you can't give like there are several different things. De-schooling is not necessarily covert in the sense that if it's part of a large scale social movement and there's you know, there it's it's like political education, it's community-based kind of you know reading groups and discussions, it's skill sharing and all those things. Nothing about that has to be covert, right? And what I'm when I'm when I was talking about being covert, it's more like while we're within the system, because we still have to function in some ways in relationship to it, right? Mm-hmm. At least for now, um, while we're within it, for those of us, and my I think my comments were specifically addressed to those of us who are in it, either as teachers or students or staff. You know, what do we do there? And there's a, there's a push within education, particularly within higher education, particularly within the liberal arts, to kind of co-opt or include, right, dissent. To include also, and, and, and this is good in some ways, it's a, it's, it's a result of our demands, right, to include histories of multiple kinds of people, to include multiple ways of, of knowing. But also part of that has been, and I think I, that this comes out of, another comment I was making in, in that piece, there's been a shift towards service learning, which I think is an institutionalization in some ways of some of the demands that students were making, have been making for a long time to make knowledge relevant to the communities outside of, uh, of the colleges. But when the university or college is the one doing that, the accountability gets cut across by the needs of the institution to make itself look good. And the fact that social services in a neoliberal capitalist society like ours are being privatized. And so this is a form of privatization in a way also. And so knowing that, it's like we don't not do those things, but we take those resources in a way that doesn't fortify the institution, but still aids movements and people on the outside. So in that context, we have to not play the game or we have to play it subversively, which means that we don't become the poster child for the program, or even if we are that, Right. We actually do things that are counter to it that they don't know about. And and that and those don't have to be some big conspiracy. They can be small. (laughs) They can be small and they can add up. But it's really about that. That's about the redistribution of resources. And 
We can even let institutions think that, you know, they have all the glory because we're not seeking it. You know, there's something about our, our culture right now where, like, everything has to be announced. Everything is a meme. It's only happening if it's public. So much of what we need to do in counter-revolutionary times has to actually be amongst ourselves. And so in a way, that's what I'm calling for. But I'm not saying that we have to, like, you know, avoid all publicity. We have to just be strategic about it. We have been speaking with writer and educator Sijana K. Reddy. She wrote the essay, We Don't Need No Education, Deschooling as an Abolitionist Practice, which is part of the collection Abolishing Carceral Society by the Abolition Collective. You can find out more about the Abolition Collective at abolitionjournal.org. This is how we'll be featuring several contributors to this collection over the next month or so, so tune in for that. Sijani is also the author of 2015's Nursing an Empire, Gendered Labor and Migration from India to the United States, and a co-editor of 2013's The Sun Never Sets, South Asians in an Age of U.S. Power. One last question for you, and our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write how, when it comes to ethnic studies, they are antithetical to the institutions of capitalist imperialism. Is ethnic studies then the only place, the only field of study where we can find a de-schooling process? Is it the only uh, curriculum that lays uh, that lies outside the realm of the institution? No. <laughs> I don't think any curriculum that's been institutionalized or mainstreamed holds hold a purview on that. And I certainly wouldn't say that um, ethnic studies, which by which we mean, you know, black studies, Asian American studies, um, Native American studies, Chicano, Latino studies, um, definitely also women's studies, you know, feminist studies, women, gender, and sexuality studies, and all the studies, right? <laughs> third world studies. But ultimately, what I'm talking about in terms of oppositional knowledge is not necessarily an institutionalized field, but a form of practice, and you can do it in any field. As long as you're connected to social movements and and sort of understand yourself as not part of the project of the institution. So, Janine, well, I don't. I think anyone, anyone can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just. I just wanted. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed this essay. It made me think about education made me think about school in a different way. It made me think about approaching the way that we reinforce institutions in a different way. It, this is a fantastic, and I'm so glad this is the first essay that we featured on the show from the book about Abolishing Carceral uh, Society, and we're going to be featuring a whole bunch more in the coming weeks. So I just wanted to, I'm really glad that this is the one that we started with, and I cannot thank you enough for being on this week's show. Oh, well, you are so welcome, and I am so honored. Um, I'm especially honored by your engagement. One thing I should say is the last thing I hope I can say is that for me, the whole essay is a question more than a statement. And it's really meant to, because I'm struggling with these questions myself. And so it's really an invitation to a conversation. So I'm really pleased that we were able to have one. Thank you so much for being on our show. That's a, a great compliment. You just made me smile. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. All right, take well, care. Thanks so much. Your eyewitness to grief. This is how the left in the global north, including the U.S., are giving cover for the West's coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela. Yep, the left is complicit in Trump's coup. Crazy, right? We'll find out how the supposed anti-war left and progressives are actually giving cover for the Venezuelan coup when we have the return of journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article. The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. If you enjoyed our conversation, 
on de-schooling with Sijina Reddy. Show your support for This Is Hell and WNUR. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now to Chicago Sound Experiment and choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, and hoodies. Or do your own show here on WNUR. Or get all that stuff and the big mystery prize, whatever the hell that is. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Now Alex has some people that we want to thank for donating to WNUR. Thank you, Jenny K. Thank you, Anonymous. Thank you, Mike W. Thank you, Anonymous. And thank you, Tom G. (laughs) That Anonymous. Deep pockets. Very deep pockets. We'll get to listener feedback in the next break because we want to get to Lucas as quickly as possible. That is, assuming that his phone is working and that his power is on, as all the power in Caracas, Venezuela, went out for a day earlier this week. This week's question from hell is, what's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart. What's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rozelowski's, Rozworski's, The uh, People's Republic of Walmart, how the world's biggest corporations are laying the foundation for socialism. Again, the question from Al is, what's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's Phonathon special edition of This Is Hell. The left of the global north is inadvertently giving cover for the West's punishing sanctions and the coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela. We'll explain what happens when the United States... Let's see if I can read this one correctly this time. We'll explain what happens when the United States stops seeing a limitless frontier to spread freedom and now only sees walls that we've built to limit freedom. Hey, that time it made sense. We'll describe what democratic socialism is and what it means for the Bernie Sanders campaign and what a democratic socialist could do in office with the power of the presidency. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin breaks the Overton window. We'll also have what Alex has been up to on social media. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of... This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This is Hell is Alex Jerry. Go to WNUR.org right now. We're working on getting Lucas. Not sure if we're going to be able to get through to him because they did lose power for an entire day on Thursday and going into Friday, and he was without power. So we'll see what happens. If we can't get in touch with Lucas, we will play the most recent interview that we did on uh, Venezuela. We talked to Jorge Martin. But go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now to Chicago's Sound Experiment and choose from newly redesigned by students WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, and hoodies. Or do your own show here on WNUR. Get all that and the big mystery prize Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Now we have 
incredible freedom here at WNUR to discuss any topic with whoever the person is on This Is Hell. We would not have that kind of freedom at any other media outlet except WNUR. We have never, ever, ever had a student, had a faculty member, had anybody ever, ever question or complain or tell us not to have a certain guest or discuss a certain topic at any time during our 23 years of being here on WNUR. That's incredible freedom. And to be honest with you, it's kind of a little dangerous, a little dangerous lack of oversight when you consider what we talked about on our show. But nonetheless, we have incredible freedom here. Uh, if you let's let's say you donate the 150 bucks and you become and you can do your own show, you can do DJ your own show. You can play whatever music you want here on WNUR. It doesn't really they don't care. You just play whatever music you want to play and you can play that music. That's how much freedom everybody has here at WNUR. You do not have this freedom when you get into the commercial broadcasting world or even the public radio world. Uh, you do not have this kind of freedom. At those places, you're constantly focused on the bottom line. We are not focused on the bottom line here. Only once a year do we ask our listeners to donate to WNUR during Phonathon. Only once a year do we do this. But we don't have to worry about underwriting. We don't have to worry about, say, the American Petroleum Institute, like NPR has to, who underwrites their uh, content and who will complain about anything that is discussed that is critical of fossil fuels. You are not going to hear pressure from BP coming at us for discussing fossil fuels and the danger that they do to our world, the climate change that they're causing. Uh, But the news has difficulty. The nightly news, that's definitely a question that it has to consider. What if we lose all of our BP ads? And boy, there were a lot of BP ads after Deepwater Horizon. And suddenly that story just got kind of, you know, the media just moved on. And I'm not saying the two are connected, but that's just the way the movie, media moves on anyway. And all that was left behind were these positive commercials about BP. So if you want to hear that kind of analysis, if you want to hear the kind of stories that we discuss on this show, if you want to hear somebody talking about deschooling, which is a concept that I'm sure you've never heard discussed before, or if you want to hear people talking about pleasure activism, which is, again, a concept that I'm sure you've never heard of before, if you like this kind of content, this very unique content that you cannot hear anywhere else, Show your support for WNUR. Show your support for This Is Hell. Go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now. Do we have Lucas yet there, Alex? Uh, no, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. All right. Well, let me get I got some... an interview queued up if you want to. All right. Well, let me do some listener feedback, sure. and then we'll get to that. If we even need to get to that. All right. It's time for listener feedback, and this week, it's hard to believe, I know, but this week, we are finally, finally getting into our emails from this year, 2019. Finally. (sighs) Can't believe it took us this long. All right, the first email. Oh, great. Actually, this one is from December of last year, right after our final show of the year. Hey, Chuck. This is from Evar, by the way. Hey, Chuck, I hope you are doing well. 
The Michael Denzel Smith conversation was a great interview that really further clarified his Harper's piece. He was good at staying on message with this point in the article, which is where it should be. However, I was struck by the example concerning Mark Lamont Hill's silencing by CNN of the larger question of the delegitimization of the BDS, Boycott, Diversify, Sanction movement, and criticism of Israel in general, and thereby any support for Palestinians. In case listeners don't know, past guest on our show, Mark Lamont Hill, at least I think he was on our show, uh, he was uh, censored, silenced by CNN over criticism of Israel. Uh, shortly before we had uh, Michael Denzel Smith on the show back in December. Evar continues, Denzel Smith used it as an example for the limits of discourse among black intellectuals, allowed by black intellectuals, which is fair since, as he made clear, black intellectuals are engaged by white media to explain aspects of their own community, not discuss issues outside of their lane. But the truth is that everyone... Ivar writes, is getting shut down on criticizing Israel or supporting Palestine. 27 states have laws against the BDS movement, with some going so far as to force individual contractors to sign loyalty oaths. The Texas Palestinian American speech pathologist, for instance. Congress is debating a law on uh, being against BDS. Any support for the Palestinian cause by Jeremy Corbyn in labor is being weaponized to tar them as anti-Semitic which is the charge lobbed against anyone who dares criticize anything about Israel. This seemed like an elephant in the room, which I hope that someone would have commented on during the interview, since no one is permitted to criticize Israel. How does this differ for a black intellectual? Is it even more forbidden? All the best wishes, Ivar. And in light of recent developments around uh, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, again, it's an important question that Ivar brings up and one we hope to be discussing with a guest on next week's show, possibly Gideon Levy of Haaretz, who has been on the show in the past and wrote in support of Congresswoman Omar this week. There's been a lot of great writing on Ilan Omar. Uh, there's an amazing article by Phyllis Bennis, a past guest on our show as well. There's a ton of really good writing on it. There's great writing at The Intercept on it. Uh, just look around for, I mean, really spectacular. It's this, I cannot believe what is happening right now, uh, that we are actually having this debate on whether uh, Zionism equals being pro-Jew. You know, that you, if you are critical of Israel, does that mean you are anti-Semitic? Does that mean you are racist? We're finally having that conversation, a conversation that we had on the airwaves here 15 years ago with Norman Finkelstein. Uh, Maybe we'll dig up that interview from like 2006 where we were having that discussion way back then. So if you like the kind of content that we bring here on This Is Hell, if you like the fact that 15 years before Ilan Omar, we were discussing whether uh, being opposed to the Israeli government was actually being anti-Semitic. We were discussing that a long time ago here on This Is Hell, and we can't do it without WNUR and without your support. So go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now. Tarver writes, please interview somebody from Extinction Rebellion, maybe even the founder, Roger Hallam himself, co-founder, I should say. And then Tarver writes, everything is the way it is because it got that way. Okay, I'll be focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of my forehead later on in today's show. 
Thanks, Tarver, for the suggestion, and we already followed up on this by having an interview with Extinction Rebellion co-founder Clara Farrell in January, but you're not hearing the new confrontational environmentalist movement being discussed anywhere else, so go to Chicago's Sound Experiment and choose from newly designed WNUR t-shirts, stickers, hats, hoodies, or do your own show here on WNUR, or get all that and the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now. During our first podcast of the year, back on January 2nd, we accidentally left the door to our studio unlocked, and a listener by the name of Tom walked in. So, Tom writes us, Hey, that was not hell at all. In fact, it was a damn lot of fun. Thanks for letting me crash your show tonight, and for years of the best radio show in town. Er, sorry for letting my support lapse. In capitalism hell. Cheers, Tom. Well, Tom, there's no reason for that support to lapse now that you've crashed our show and had your email read on air. So go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now to Chicago Sound Experiment and choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, t-shirts, hats, and hoodies. Or do your own show here on WNUR to get all that and the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Now, Caitlin writes us, writes to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Hi, I'm interested in volunteering. Where do I begin? Caitlin. Well, you begin by doing what you have already done, Caitlin, and that's by asking and emailing us. If anybody wants to become a volunteer here on This Is Hell, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. It's really that damn easy. David writes to us at chuck at thisishell.com, all the way from Vancouver Island, so this email took a long time to get here. David writes with a guest suggestion. Hi, Chuck and the producers and everyone else who puts on the great, this great show for us. Thank you. I saw the recent Jacobin article, Hegemony Now, which is a great headline, by Nicole Ashoff. It referenced an article by Nancy Fraser in, African, or African, in American Affairs called From Progressive Neoliberalism to Trump and Beyond. Just read the second and third paragraph and you should be fully hooked up. You must get her on for an interview. I searched This Is Hell's website. No Nancy Fraser there. I know, it kind of surprised me too. I could have swore that we had her on the show. I think it's just she's been in the guest queue for so long. Uh, let's see, David continues. For me, this is one of the most important reads I've had in the last year. It looks like Fraser has expanded the essay into a book due out in April by Verso, titled The Old is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born. You must book an interview with all good wishes, David. So here's the second and third paragraphs that David says will suck us into Nicole's story that led David to request Nancy as a guest. I know, kind of complicated. Kind of need to whiteboard it out to figure out exactly how we got from Nicole to Nancy. But bear with me. Nicole writes, the daily headlines certainly seem to confirm this assessment that we are a nation in crisis. Yet the nature of the crisis remains murky. While it is clear that in 2016 we witnessed an unprecedented display of shifting political sentiments, it is far less clear what the implications of this shift are. There are numerous interpretations floating around. Some argue that the U.S. government has taken an authoritarian turn and that President Trump, through 
doltishness, design, or both, is sabotaging the functionality of the state, rendering it incapable of carrying out the basic duties of democratic governance. Others focus on the growing sense that ordinary people have lost faith in the government, both in its ability to act in their interests and in the beliefs that they have a meaningful voice or a place in the demos. And here's a couple more paragraphs for good measure. Has America reached a tipping point in which the contradictions built up over the past three decades have become an insurmountable barrier to the continuation of the post-Cold War neoliberal consensus? Yet despite a considerably different landscape of crisis compared to the 70s, observers across the spectrum are convinced, as Nancy Fraser argues, that we are in the midst of a broad, multifaceted crisis. So... I got to get Nancy on the show. We got to get Nicole back on the show in the near future because Nicole has been a contributor on our show on several occasions. So thank you. I really appreciate the suggestion, David. And if any of you have guest suggestions, please send them to Chuck at thisishell.com. This is how it wants to start being a lot more democratic. We have complained uh, just earlier today. We were complaining about how the education system, how schools are too, dem- too undemocratic. We've talked about how democracy not only stops at the schoolroom door, it stops at the jail cell and at the prison gate. It stops at a lot of places at the workplace, you know, entry. It stops at a lot of places. And so we're going to try to make this is hell as democratic as we possibly can. We're already doing that by taking your guest suggestions, but we want to do that more and more. I don't want to put myself in some kind of echo chamber or cocoon of topics and guests to have on the show. I want to learn, and the best way I can learn is to get other people to contribute their perspectives and their opinions and their ideas and guest suggestions to our show. The way in which I learn the most on the show is through the guests or the listeners that uh, or the guests that listeners have su- suggested on our show. So please help us make This Is Hell a more democratic show and therefore a better show by sending your guest suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. Or if you just have uh, not a guest but a topic that you'd like to hear discussed, please feel free to send that to us as well. If there's something we're not touching on that we need to be touching on, please do that. So send any of your listener feedback to chuck at thisishell.com. That's listener feedback, and we're up to mid-January now. Woohoo! We're only two months behind. Finally catching up on a huge backlog of correspondences from you that have been busting the email bag for a really long time. If you want to contact us and possibly have your email read on air, email us at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. You can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you can direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and to follow us on Twitter, again, at This Is Hell Radio. Go to WNUR.org right now. Click on Donate Now to don- Donate Now to Sh- Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, and choose from nearly uh, from all these newly redesigned WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, and hoodies. Or you might, you know, if you donate $150 or more, you can do your own show here on WNUR. To get all that and the big mystery prize, just go to WNUR.org and click on Phonathon now. This week's question from Al is, what's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? What's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? Our replies get read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Lee Phillips's, and 
Mikhail Rozwarski's The People's Republic of Walmart, How the World's Biggest Corporations Are Laying the Foundation for Socialism. Hey, I was thinking if, uh, depending on how much listener feedback you have, we could do Question from Hell now and go along with Greg if you wanted. I'll just make another pitch, and then we'll just get Greg and, like, let's see if he will do it at, like, 11, 11 something like that. Okay. Um, so that's listener feedback. I'll reply right on uh, air during the next hour. The winner is going to get People's Republic of Walmart. Again, the question from Hell is, what's the first thing where uh, you're going to be buying from the nationalized Walmart? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen after our next guest to see if you've won. All right. There's something else I wanted to mention about Phonathon real quick as I pull this up here. All right. So it's never been easier to donate to WNUR. You don't have to call up and talk to an operator anymore. All you have to do is go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. For a pledge of 10 bucks, we'll send you the new 2019 student-designed WNUR sticker, which, like all the merchandise, as always, features a new student-designed logo. 10 bucks, you get a sticker. Now you can display that on your car, your fridge, your computer, wherever you want to show off how much you support and appreciate WNUR and shows like This Is Hell. For a pledge of 25 bucks, you get the sticker and the new WNUR 2019 t-shirt. 40 bucks, it's the sticker and a new hat with the new logo. 50 bucks, it's a sticker and the new hoodie. 55, you get the sticker, the t-shirt, and the hat. 70 bucks, you get the sticker, the t-shirt, and the hoodie. For spending $80, you get the sticker, the hat, and the hoodie all featuring the WNUR logo designed for 2019. And for $125, you get all of that, the sticker, the T-shirt, the hat, and the hoodie. And for $150, we have a very, very special gift. If you donate $150 or more, you will be invited to the WNUR studio to play a show of your own as a guest DJ. You can play whatever you want. You can relive your college days or whenever you worked at a radio station before. Or if you've never done a radio show before, here's your chance. You can record your set and contribute to history. And finally, for $200, you get the sticker, t-shirt, hat, and hoodie. You'll get to DJ your own live radio show here on WNUR. And we have a special, yet apparently very mysterious, limited edition WNUR gift. So donate now by going to WNUR.org and clicking on support. One, at, If you go to WNUR.org and you click on, sorry, click on donate now, sorry, not support, you click on donate now. If you go to WNUR.org and you click on donate now, there's a very well-written essay, I guess you'd say, about why we are raising money. And there's one section I want to read because it's about being a community DJ, as I am. I'm not a student here at WN, or at Northwestern. I never was a student here at Northwestern. But Northwestern and WNUR, they open up their doors to members of the community, especially those here in Evanston. I'm not from Evanston, but they open the doors to their community. So I just want to read this one part about community DJs. WNUR's site says, although WNUR is student-run, its roster of DJs comprises both students and members of the WNUR community. 
These DJs are able to share their experience, knowledge, and passion. They're just saying that we're old. These DJs are able to share their experience, knowledge, and passion with students, creating an incredible learning community. And that has definitely happened here. We have had many producers over the years and board ops on our show. And the one thing that I'm always the happiest to hear when they leave and they move on, that they say that their education wouldn't have been the education that they had at Northwestern if it wasn't for us. So that's always the thing that makes me so incredibly happy that we can continue an incredible learning community here at WNUR with Northwestern students. Programming ranges from jazz to all kinds of experimental rock to house music and everything in between at WNUR, according to their website. We host top-notch talk radio, news reporting, and sports broadcasts for talkers, techies. Join Airplay, our long-standing in-studio performance segment, which has previously hosted bands like OK Go. Our original producer, Andrew Duncan, was uh, the original lead guitarist for OK Go, so I remember that happening. Jeff Tweedy of Wilco and the Smashing Pumpkins. With over 60 years of tradition, some of our famous alumni include Wynn Butler of Arcade Fire, Steve Albini, and Derek Carter. Please join us in celebrating WNUR. By demonstrating your support, go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Now, And I just want to mention uh, one of those people. Uh, Wynn Butler was a student here at, at Northwestern University, and he was on the executive board. And there was someone who was upset, one person, one student who wasn't even working at the station, who uh, was upset about the fact that we were getting four full hours on Saturday morning and wanted to take up some of that time to do their own show. Uh, But their idea wasn't very well fleshed out, and it seemed just like kind of trolling before there was trolling. And Wynn Butler stood up for the show, and all of the executive board did. All the students got behind us to support our show. So incredible students and incredible people have come through the studios of WNUR.org, and I've experienced them firsthand and how kind and conscientious they could be. So show your support for WNUR. Go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now so you can donate now. Coming up on this week's Phonathon special, we are going to discuss walls and frontiers with Greg Grandin. We're also going to talk about, uh, geez, I lost my whole place here. We're also going to talk to uh, our guest Megan Day in a little bit about what democratic socialism means and what it means for the Bernie Sanders campaign and what kind of power democratic socialists can have once they do take, uh, if they do, take the White House. With us right now, historian Greg Grandin is author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Welcome back to This is Hal, Greg. Hey, Chuck. It's great to be on again. It's always great to have you on the show. You know, I think it's been since 2015, so that's far too long, and I apologize for that, (laughs) sir. Uh, Greg has appeared on This Is Hell several times in the past. Most recently, as I said, back in uh, 2015 when the book um, 
when we discussed the book Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. Uh, that was selected as one of the best books to be featured on This Is Hell that year. Greg is the only author to have made our annual best of book list uh twice in a row and he did it twice in a row with uh, the empire of necessity slavery freedom and deception in the new world which came out the year before you can find out more about greg by going to greggrandon.com so greg you quote historian frederick jackson turner writing in 1893 the united states lies like a huge page in the history of society line by line as we read this uh, continental page from west to east we find the record of social evolution you add expansion across the continent turner said made europeans into something new into a people both coarse and curious, self-disciplined and spontaneous, practical and inventive, filled with, again, quoting Turner, a restless, nervous energy and lifted by that buoyancy and exuberance which comes with freedom. Does expansion define us? Is the U.S. by its very nature, by definition, an expansionist imperialist project, an empire, because it is what defines us? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and yes, the answer to that question is yes. It's hard to think of another country in which the specific experience of expansion, the theoretical premise of expansion as a solution to problems, and the ideology of expansion as central to a national identity, uh, other than the United States. The United States was conceived in expansion before it was founded, a number of its political theorists. Uh, understood expansion as a solution to the problems of of concentrated power, of of corruption, of of, of potentially what would later be called class politics or class social demand. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, Benjamin Franklin, a number of other uh, theorists of the Republic understood that the move west was the solution to a, a, a whole series of different problems and, and, and the social experience of expansion since since the arrival on the eastern seaboard has been to push west and, and, and in many ways the American Revolution itself was a reaction against the British attempt to pend white settlers east of of of, um, of the of Appalachia, of the Alleghenies. And and th- that experience just um, continued through the late 18th century, 19th century, certainly Indian removal, war on Mexico, uh, spilled out the United States to the Pacific, and then onward into the Philippines and Cuba. And I think it's fairly undeniable that the United States has enjoyed a prerogative that no other nation, or even in some ways, I'd argue, empire has enjoyed the uh, the century-long ability to organize its domestic politics through the promise of expansion, to use the promise of endless growth to uh, respond to social demands, to, to, to coalesce coalition politics, and find a moral order. Uh, Greg, we're having a little bit of difficulty with our phone line, so we're going to reestablish with you really quickly. Alex is going to get you back on the line. You are listening to This Is Hell, and we are doing a special phonathon broadcast of This Is Hell right now. Show your support for This Is Hell and for WNUR. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now. We have a wide array of different gifts for you at different levels of donation. Please check them out. You could even 
DJ a show here on WNUR. You know, every week we have I come across some word when I'm in my reading where it's just a word that I've never seen before and I have to look up. It always happens week in, week out. So today we're starting a new segment. It's going to be called The Word of the Week That Chuck Didn't Understand. The Word of the Week That Chuck Just Didn't Know About. And so this word, this week's Word of the Week, Cuffle. Cuffle. C-O-F-F-L-E. Cuffle. It's a noun, and it means a line of animals or slaves fastened or driven along together. A line of animals or slaves fastened or driven along together. So slaves being chained together in a line. That's a coffle. And that's the word this week. That before this week, I didn't know. Uh, we have Greg Grandom back on the line. You write that what became known as Turner's Frontier Thesis, Greg, which argued that the expansion of settlement across a frontier of free land created a uniquely American form of political equality, a vibrant, forward-looking individualism, placed a wager on the future. Now, Greg, when it comes to that forward-looking individualism, we have had critics on our show of today's version of capitalism, whether you want to call it financialization or neoliberalism or whatever, who have often made the point that neoliberalism's hyper-individuality is a destructive force. Is today's individualism anything new in the U.S.? Is our current version of individualism any different from the forward-looking individualism that Turner observed? Um, well, I would say that there was uh, currents and and traces of this kind of distorted, violent, uh, petulant individualism in which freedom uh, was understand as it was defined as freedom from restraint. I would I would say that you could trace its origins back certainly to Andrew Jackson and 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 earlier to a certain kind of um, uh, grievous grievous refusal to be penned in east of the Alleghenies, a certain kind of individualism that was founded on racial violence in the sense that the, 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 the domination of people of color, the wealth created from the control of people of color's labor, the wealth created from the dispossession of people of color's land, the territory taken from Mexico, created the material foundation for an unprecedented kind of Caucasian, Caucasian freedom, Jacksonian democracy, but more than that, ideologically, and then once that, once that freedom was created, uh, 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 freedom from restraint was defined in opposition to the people of color that were put down. That was the kind of, uh, uh, it's the, 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 the racial foundation, white supremacist foundation of individual freedom and individual rights is um, is inextricable. It's you. You can't kind of delink white supremacy from 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 in, from a certain kind of individualism. That said, at different moments, uh, uh, the worst aspects ideologically and uh, were maybe suppressed, and and forms of mutualism and and uh, and 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 uh, and cooperation and even solidarity might have emerged from. From that notion of individualism, but I do think we're at a moment where the the most toxic currents of of this long 
of this deep political culture has crystallized in the form of uh, Trumpian nationalism. You're right. The kind of Americanism Turner represented took uh, took all the unbounded optimism that went into the founding of the United States and bet that the country's progress moving forward on the frontier and into the world would reduce racism to a remnant and leave it behind as residue. How was that kind of frontier moving into the frontier? How was that military expansion and advancement? How was that seen to somehow going to be able to reduce racism? Yeah, well, Turner and and Turner presented his ideas in Chicago for the first time in 1893 at the world at the at the famous World Fair. Um, uh, Turner, you have to understand Turner in relationship to what he was arguing against prior to. Prior to Turner, there were um, there were historical thinkers that were explicitly racist. Historical profession, the Saxon Anglo-Saxon historical profession, dominated by East Coast Brahmins, understood uh, the United States in some ways to be a continuous cycle or a long history of Saxon expansion out of Germany to the British Isles across the Atlantic to to, to the New World, and you know you just compare. Um, turn it to somebody like Woodrow Wilson, who was an historian also and writing around the same time before he became president. He was unabashedly racist. He thought that the violence and the constant warfare against nature, against Native Americans, against 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 individuals' own base instincts created the foundation of a kind of civilization. You know, this is a way of thinking. Uh, so, so, Turner, so Turner's importance is that he sidelines all of that. He downplays it. He mutes it. He, he doesn't really talk about war. For him, expansion is driven. I mean, this Turner has his his biases, and and he is undoubtedly uh, an Anglo supremacist implicitly. But he emphasizes commerce and technology and law and public policy and and uh, and a certain kind of mutualist individualism that drives forward uh, expansion west. And so. Um, you know, for for a country like the United States that was about to launch itself into world power in 1898, you know, you couldn't really administer the world as if it was the Louisiana Purchase writ large, as if it was Indian removal writ large, as if it was the Mexican secession writ large. You had to kind of find at least a theoretical foundation for universalism. And 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 so so therefore even people who admitted the brutality of expansion and the violence of expansion and the suffering that that um, that of of peoples under the boot of expansion could at least credibly argue or I mean I don't think it's credible but at least some people might think it's credible that um, that that racism would be left behind as the U.S. as 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 you as the United States universalizes itself and moves out in the world and and that's and and implicit in that is that the extremism of the left of the right of the white you know the kind of white supremacy the the racism but also of the left a kind of class politics that that understood that 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 confronted the economic question that confronted the industrial question would be marginalized and and this vital centrism could be uh, established and and my argument is that 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 is all premised on ongoing the ongoing ability to point to endless growth as 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 the as the way to organize domestic politics. So was was that kind of expansion then was that seen as 
humanitarian work? Because I'm wondering how much of that feeling still remains residually from that era of expansion. For instance, in Venezuela, when the United States government says we're only there to help, is this a continuation of that feeling of... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the War of 1898, in which the U.S. took the Philippines and and Puerto Rico and and annexed Cuba as a neocolonial dependency, uh, was understood as a humanitarian war, freeing peoples trampled down under Spanish monarchy. I mean, and there's certainly traces of that uh, uh, presumed benevolence and, and, and humanitarianism in previous episodes of, 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 of military expansion, a war on Mexico. You could easily find in the papers justifications as, as a, it's a, it's a war, it's a war to bring civilization to benighted peoples. Indian removal was understood uh, on those terms, but it really does coalesce explicitly in 1898 and in, in this, in this self-regard uh, as a war to bring democracy and what later would be called human rights to, to, to other people. And then that becomes a found a, 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 a central strut of, 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 in, of justifications for intervention and expansion that, that come afterward. How does that sense of the frontier feed into or reinforce, or what's its relationship to the concept of American exceptionalism? Well, it's it's that. If I mean, American ex- exceptionalism could be defined in in many different ways. One of them is a certain kind of individualism a notion that uh that it's only individual rights that are the the basis of a virtuous citizenship the right to to you know to own to possess to assemble to believe all things in which it's understood that the state actually uh refrains from intervening so social rights or collective rights are understood to be un-american that's a, certainly a foundation of american exceptionalism this marginalization of um of, on the one hand, uh, a kind of uh, racism that is obviously part of expansion, but at least an ideological uh, marginalization of it, as well as a marginalization of leftist politics, is, is part of an American ex- uh, exceptionalism that the U.S. represents this kind of centrist universalism, a kind of liberalism that transcends the choice that other countries succumb to, barbarism or socialism. Uh, and are forced to confront at different moments. I mean, think I like in the book I compare um, you know, the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, which which forced Europe to confront the class question. I mean, you know, the resolution of those revo- of those resolu- revolutions when not didn't didn't necessarily lead to socialism, but they did set the foundation for uh, the foundation of social democracy of labor parties. What was the U.S. doing in 1848? It wasn't. It wasn't staging a revolution confronting the contradictions of political liberalism. It was. It was. It was waging a multi-class war against native against Mexicans. It was moving out on the frontier. So the U.S. had instead of having a social revolution in 1848, the U.S. had a war on the frontier against racial others that that put forward that that pushed forward the the boundaries of U.S. power. You write that the poetry of the frontier stopped on June 16th, 2015, when Donald J. Trump announced his presidential campaign by stand, uh, standing Frederick Jackson Turner, the historian on his head. Trump said, 
I will build a great wall. There in the lobby of his tower on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, Trump offered his own judgment on history, referring specifically to the to NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, and broadly to the country's commitment to free trade. Trump said, we have to stop, and it has to stop now. That's, that's good, right? Trump's anti-expansionist, and we're finally going to see a lack of advancing U.S. interests by military force. So yeah. should we be well, celebrating the, the end? Yeah. He sell he is he he explicitly I mean obviously as president he he says to, he says uh, he says everything all at the same time but, <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but, uh, but but yes he did he did explicitly say that he rejected American exceptionalism and that is the starting point of the book the way that uh, Trump's wall turns uh, a frontier turns frontier on its head. And uh, where the frontier represents the future, where it represents the U.S. moving out into the world, where it represents an, a, a kind of um, foundational uh, symbol of what li- what becomes um, what becomes liberal multilateralism or multinationalism or universalism, the idea that that if you build a kind of open world, then everybody will prosper, everybody will rise up, and and tr- you know Trump is the Trump is, Trump's wall is the inverse of that, and 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 the politics of the border become the place that symbolizes where the U.S. gets caught in the past, where veterans return from all of the U.S.'s lost wars and refight battles. It becomes this place of, and it's easy to think of it's, you know, it's, and this is what I say in the book. It's easy to think of it as representing a more disenchanted view, a more honest view of the world, what some theorists call race realism, that uh, that there, you know, there are limits. Not everybody can can could sit at the table. Not all boats will be be raised up and will rise up. But but it it is its own form of of enchantment, its own form of illusion, because it sanctions and and authorizes exactly where we started this this conversation, a kind of um, uh, a kind of um, freedom defined as freedom from restraint, a petulant hedonism that is embodied by Trump himself. I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I won't lose supporters, he said. Uh, there's a way in which freedom is becomes culturally defined as cruelty and, 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 and the right to do whatever you want, the right to dominate, the right to you know, roll coal, the right to pull out of Paris, uh, you know, it, it's there's a there's a, it's just an it's a, a assertion of power in the face of uh, of of a world that is in many ways on the on the precipice of ecological catastrophe. So it's its own illusion that the U.S. could escape uh, 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 that precipice and keep going. So he's exercising his right to be cruel. His freedom to be cruel. So, is this potentially post-expansionist United States under Trump? Is it any more or less cruel than the expansionist United States we had during colonization? Well, it's a great question because we don't even have to go back to colonization. We could go back to the centerpiece of the free trade economic globalization. NAFTA, right? NAFTA was the crown jewel in a in a in a slate of economic treaties that was supposed to symbol the high point of 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 uh, of that world that Trump is supposedly running and organizing and po- politicking against um but let's look at NAFTA NAFTA freed capital and it freed commodities 
but it militarized and and paralyzed labor mobility. The militarization of the border went hand in hand with the passage of NAFTA. So the old world that Trump claims to be uh, campaigning against and, and opposing and standing in opposition to was no less cruel. I don't. I, I don't think. I mean, obviously, just look at Iraq, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the catastrophe, the moral bankruptcy of Abu Ghraib. I mean, there's no. I mean, there's no uh, a shortage of, of of ways in which you can compare that. What came before Trump was in some ways worse than Trump. But I think what Trump represents is the political organization of cruelty, the turning it into a spectacle, the way that the marginalization. Of, uh, of a certain kind of uh, white supremacy has now moved to center stage. And in the book, I call it the nationalization of border brutalism or the bordification of, bo- uh, of na- uh, the nationalization of uh, the bordification of national politics, the way in which, you know, all of that supremacy and racism that, that, that wasn't just metaphorically marginalized, but literally marginalized on the border. The history, we could talk about the history of the border and the way in which it crystallized a, a one strand of a very toxic Anglo-Saxonism, at least since the 1920s, if not earlier, going back to the Mexican-American War, um, was marginalized along the border. Then, then become has become nationalized under Trump. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's organizing a cruelty that at least was ideologically repressed or, or, or muted in the earlier period and, and turning it into spectacle. If you are enjoying our conversation with historian Greg Grandin, author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, please show your support for WNUR. And this is hell by going to WNUR.org and clicking on Donate Now. Now you write the uh, you write true religion moved east to west with the sun believed early American theologians and if man could keep pace with its light perhaps historical time itself could be overcome and decline avoided the west said one frontier writer was the kind of mankind's second chance the land of mankind's second chance it was said Turner a place of perennial rebirth is American expansion then a was it a religious project? Is the state religion of the U.S. expansion through military advancement? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that you could certainly find religious components of expansion at the, at the beginning of settlement, uh, an errand into the wilderness, the, 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 the theological schisms in Europe that, that, that produced uh, exodus into North America. Um, but but there was not one coherent understanding. Uh, some some of the earliest settlers thought that ex- expansion west would would be a way of escaping uh, these these theological debates and conflicts. Others saw it as a way of opening a new front and 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 winning a new world. It, what what mattered was was less the coherence of of this problem that expansion was thought to solve then then everybody everybody understand expansion as solving a problem and and in the in the 18th century there's a, there is a secularization of that benjamin franklin is a good example of the way in which a lot of the theological underpinnings of expansion become secularized uh, in terms of progress in terms of population growth the celebration of population growth the celebration of of, of what we would now call economic development. 
Um, but I think it's undeniable that there are strong messianic currents that that can tr- be traced back to more an explicitly religious Christian time, and 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 it's obvious why they merge and have an affinity with with more explicitly religious currents currents in 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 our day and age. Why there is a often a convergence between uh, expansionists, secular expansionists, and religious expansionists. And you mentioned that when the physical frontier was closed, its imagery could easily be applied to other arenas of expansion, to markets, war, culture, technology, science, the psyche, and politics. What do we miss in understanding imperialism? What do we miss in understanding empire when we see it only as a physical manifestation, only a military expression of occupation, and not understand how imperialism can happen through the market, war, culture, tech, science, psyche, and politics. Yeah, well, we, are, we, we miss the domestic components. We miss the priority of domestic politics. We miss the way in which one of the things that does make the United States unique is its ability to use expansion in all of its many forms to organize Domestic politics, put it in in Gramscian terms, if Antonio Gramsci, hegemony, foreign policy is where hegemony takes place, not necessarily over other nations, but within this nation. Way that expansion allows a kind of uh, social or groups, social needs to be responded to, politics to be organized extremism to be marginalized. Um, there's been a strong ideological component, and I think that that's often what's missed when we just think about expansion in military terms or even in market terms. You write that Martin Luther King Jr. argued that the ideal of the frontier fed into multiple reinforcing pathologies, into racism, a violent masculinity, and moralism that celebrates the rich and punishes the poor for over a year from early 1967 until his murder in April 1968 as the United States escalated its war in Vietnam. King put forth in a series of sermons and press conferences a damning analysis. So what is America without the frontier? Well, it's a great question, and um, and the thing about the frontier thesis is that it contains within its, itself its own critique, and um, and you saw this almost immediately. Fred, Frederick Jackson Turner in the 1890s puts it forth. It becomes fairly widespread and generalized into other realms of social thought other than history through the 1910s. By the 1920s, uh, critics of 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 of, of Americanism, for lack of a better word, begin to basically accept the assumptions of the frontier thesis. That's what's unique about America is 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 the frontier, is expansion. But instead of arguing that everything good about the United States comes from the frontier, they start to argue all of the bad things the U.S. has, or all the good things that it can't have namely socialized democracy. And, and the, the, a lot of the New Deal intellectuals, Stuart Chase, um, Francis Perkins, intellectuals and policymakers, even FDR himself, uh, cited the frontier thesis to put forward a more social conception of citizenship, the idea that we have to stop fleeing forward and we have to turn and face our problems and that we owe each other a mutual obligation. And I think to come back to the question, Martin Luther King was operating clearly within this tradition. He started incorporating the frontier metaphor uh, into his public 
speeches around the time that that JFK, John F. Kennedy, began talking about a new frontier. And um, and King elaborated uh, pretty much what I try to draw out in the larger argument of the book, the way that frontier both defers a reckoning with social problems, even as it accelerates uh, a kind of uh, 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 kind of, even as it accelerates and, and aggravates those social problems. And King talked about this on multiple levels, but but the, the Vietnam War, he understood as the demonic, he used the phrase demonic suction tube, and, 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 and talked about the ways in which the flamethrower was used in Vietnam will burn at home, the bombs dropped in Vietnam will be dropped, will explode at home. He was very clear about the domestic... Uh, the domestic, what we might call today, blowback of of foreign war, and the way it destroyed it destroys any possibility of a of a kind of um, creating a, a beloved community, a social republic, a social democracy. Do you see the bombs that are currently falling? The United States is currently dropping on Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia. Yemen, Iraq, Libya, Niger, and wherever else we are at war, because I think I'm missing at least one war. In there. Yeah. Do you see those bombs exploding today in the United States? Yeah, well, King would use that metaphor to talk about the, the money, basically, the, very specifically to talk about the financing of war, money that could be used to, to respond to social problems and alleviate poverty. Um, uh, and and, and uh, I think that that, that that observation carries forward. I mean, we, a lot has happened since the 1960s, but in some ways it's been in the, it's been, it's been in the, uh, a kind of escalation, uh, upscaling of all of the problems that King identified. I mean, Ray, Ronald Reagan and the New Right's restoration of the frontier ideal and, and, and uh, spending on military using uh, the push into the third world tax cuts at home uh, I think created an ultimately unsustainable political system that uh, that was expanded even further after Reagan, after the U.S. won the Cold War by Bill Clinton, by George H.W. Bush, by Bill Clinton, uh, and certainly George W. Bush. And and part of the argument, or the main argument, is um, is uh, Trumpism is what happens when the empire ends, right? Trumpism is what happens when. When 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 uh, the neoliberal project has collapsed, the neoconservative project after nine eleven and 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 the military and moral catastrophe of the war in Iraq has collapsed. Um, you know, the, uh, other other historians talk rightly about the way that wars breed domestic extremism. And you know, this is bringing the war back home. After Vietnam, we saw the rise of uh, a certain kind of radical white supremacy, including white supremacy at the border, the mobilization of the Ku Klux Klan at the border. But as long as there's another war up ahead, you can roll that, that extremism outward. Uh, uh, you can't do that anymore. Um, I, I, you know, uh, 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 you know, I know these are big, big abstractions I'm talking about. Barack Obama did restore in many ways uh, uh, the, the, or stabilize the operation, but he lost the ability to use war as a kind of messianic rallying call. And, and just to, to give you a very concrete example, you know, as I mentioned, most, most, extreme, most of that kind of white, white supremacy and political extremism blows back to the United States after wars end. 
whether it be 1898, whether it be uh, whether it be Vietnam. What we're living through is is, an, is 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 the mobilization of domestic nativism as the wars are going on. Uh, you could see it. it. It was exactly almost at the time of the Abu Ghraib scandal, which, you know, there's lots of different markers for the failure of 9-11 foreign policy and the collapse of the U.S.'s moral authority. But the Abu Ghraib scandal, the torture of the Iraqis and the debates around the legitimacy of torture is a pretty, is a pretty stark one. And, and it's exactly at that moment that the, that the Minutemen become organized. By, by form of Vietnam, radicalized to the right veterans, by Iraqi veterans, uh, Iraq war veterans. And, and so you, what you see is a kind of ongoing war beyond the border, but a kind of all-consuming extremism that has been turned back home. And I think you saw it in the racist reaction to Barack Obama, and you, and you, and, and you see it in, 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 in the election of Donald Trump. How do you see this expansion coming to an end, this limitless growth coming to an end? Because, you know, after all, the U.S. third quarter economic growth was at 3.4 percent. And I think if that was the annual rate, it would be the largest growth since 2005. So why isn't infinite growth achievable or possible? Well, there, it is true. There's been a recovery. So it's easy to quickly say that the, that the Iraq war destroyed the, the neoconservative project and 2008 financial collapse destroyed the neoliberal growth model. But I think the recovery has been quite perverse. I mean, I think the, you know, the, the stockpiled wealth, the, the, the loss of social mobility, the deep inequality, the, the something like 40% of the country living in poverty despite those, those, uh, those in, indices of economic growth have, um, have foreclosed on 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 that kind of uh, that kind of uh, the promise of limitless growth as a way of organizing domestic politics, um, you know, and and uh, I think it, it will. It's one of the things that certainly accounts for the 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 emergence. And I know this this is actually might set up your next conversation, but the but the the, the spreading popularity of social democracy among among new generations and 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 the legitimacy of social rights. You know, not just those individual rights we talked about, but 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 rights in which the state takes a more active role in creating a virtuous society. The the, the administration of healthcare, the and education, and and the insurance of a of a, of a decent life. Those are all rights that do stand uh, in opposition to a to a certain kind of American exceptionalism, and and yet are gaining in popularity. So I think that. That um, there's many indications why, despite <laughs> despite the you know 3.8 percent growth and the low unemployment numbers, that there's a realization that 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 older model has failed. And then, of course, there's there's there's, there's the ecological precipice that world that the that the world is standing on. And that's yet another reason we've had Greg coming on our show now for 15 years. He's willing to tee up our next interview. It's always fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, Greg, you write that frontier limitlessness was used to weaken the uh, mechanisms of social solidarity, especially government-provided welfare and labor unions, just when they were most new- needed. In the mythology of the West, cowboys don't join unions. The gap between myth and reality has now widened into a chasm. Why now, and what impact has this chasm between myth and reality had on society? 
Well, uh, you know, the U.S. other countries went through the kind of economic liberalization that the United States uh, submitted itself to, starting in, with farm restructuring in the 1970s and the Reaganism in the 1980s. But, but, um, but really, none. none I, I mean, the 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 assault on all of the institutions that might have mitigated that restriction, the welfare state, trade unions, just just left in its wake a brutal and cruel and 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 painful political structure and 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 and, and economic system that. That that seems to be unsustainable, and why now? Uh, again, I think it's just the, I think it's the 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 exhaustion of these, of the neoliberal model, the the neoconservative model, and and the fact that 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 um, that that the the actual, I mean, climate for climate change, the actual West is on fire, right? The mythologized West. Is literally burning to the ground. Millions and millions of acres are are, are, are laying, being laid waste as a result of climate change. So I think that the the limits to a, 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 to a certain kind of you know, the United States it's less American exceptionalism than American exemptionism. The idea that the United States was exempt from limits, exempt from social obligation, exempt from death itself, is no longer sustainable. That's a much better way to put it than American exceptionalism. Uh, you, you write, uh, what distinguishes earlier racist presidents like Jackson and Wilson from Trump is that they were in office during the upswing of America's moving out in the world when domestic political polarization could be staunched, that is restricted, and the country held together even after the Civil War nearly tore it apart by the promise of endless growth. Trumpism is extremism turned inward all-consuming and self-devouring. What happens when that extremism is turned inward? Because that sounds like we're hedging towards a civil war. Well, what happens is that we start we start not just putting children in in detaining children, but 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 organizing a politics around the detention, being unapologetic about it. What happens is that is that the brutality that that was understood to be ancillary to uh, public policy is, is seized on by 30, 40% of the population as, as something to be celebrated. The, 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 the forced adoptions, the, the, the family detentions, the, 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 the physical and sexual terror that migrants are, are submitted to, the, the deaths and, the, and, the, and, the, and, 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 and violence. I mean, that's one of the things that happens. And, and, um, I mean, uh, another thing that happens, though, is also the the emergence of of of, of a widening of of the debate. And, and again, to, to, <laughs> to you know, uh, you're going to have Megan Day on it to talk about to this the, the expansion of a of a of a of a of a critique that would have been unheard of ten years ago, would have been unheard of five years ago. Uh, that that um you know that that the choice confronting the United States is a choice that 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 other countries had to face at different moments but the United States managed to exempt itself from and that's between socialism and barbarism and whether that choice manifests itself in a political contest or other forms of conflict is is like remains to be seen so why is trump really building the wall what do you think what does it reveal to you about either his thinking or what do you think is the real reason he is building the wall 
Well, I think because it captures it, it. There's no other thing that so crystallizes the nativism that he rode to power on. There's no other uh, 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 symbol, abstract or physical, that that better crystallizes what theorists, what some people call a race realism, this rejection of uh, of, of of a politics organized around the promise of growth. Uh, it's a monument to uh, to um, to the to the end of the myth. To bring it back to the title of the book, to the end of the, the uh, you know the 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 the, um, the the to an end of a politics that presumed that um, that the way to solve problems is through through endless expansion and limitless growth. It's a it's a it's quite an apt symbol. I think that I think that there's nothing that better congeals what Trump is than that than that. Than, than, than the wall, than the border wall. You're right. The point isn't to actually build the wall, but to constantly announce the building of the wall. So yeah. is the wall merely a mechanism to get political support akin to the Republicans of the 80s and 90s, as Thomas Frank argued back then, being anti-choice, promising the end of Roe v. Wade, but never delivering, although they certainly have done everything they can to slowly chip away at it. Is the wall another Republican promise to the far right that they can potentially use as a cudgel against the Democrats for years? Yeah, I think that that's fairly clear. I think what matters more is the announcing of the wall, the promise to build the wall, of getting into these political fights over the wall. Because the wall also reveals the contradictions in the older order that, I mean, Trump is very good at punching through the hypocrisy. I mean, you know, and 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 um, the militarization of the border, including the expansion of physical barriers, was a bipartisan consensus. Uh, Jimmy Carter signed off on on expanding a, a a fence that was that was that was designed to um, to inflict pain, to amputate thing. I mean, Carter. Jimmy Carter, I don't think he claims he didn't know about this, but my point is that it's a, in, in terms of it was at least the administration with the fence was designed to 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 amputate fingers and and toes as a, as a as a detriment, a deterrent to other migrants coming across. Bill Clinton, concurrent exactly with the with the with the passage and implementation of NAFTA, expanded uh, the militarization of um, of urban boarding cross border crosses that were. That for for decades had been relatively that 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 were routes in which migrants went back and forth relatively easy in order to uh, work at seasonal jobs and and the point was to use geography as an ally as the head of his immigration and natural service uh, an agency said to to basically use the desert as a deterrent and so the wall is not just a symbol of Trumpism. Trump is able to use it as a symbol of the hypocrisy of the of the of the old order that he is that he has risen to power, at least rhetorically opposing, um, and and uh, you see it in a lot of the debates that you know there is this emergence. That on the one hand, I think that the reaction to Trump is is leading to a more a realization among people that that the security first argument is is uh, is it has to be rejected in its many forms the meaning security you have to establish you have to seal the border before you have immigration reform but Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and those and those debates about about government funding and the government shutdown 
to a large extent, accepted the assumptions and premises of, of what Trump was putting forward, that the border is a problem and it has to be dealt with. And so the wall becomes a way of, of not just symbolizing what Trump stands for, but, but usefully for Trump, what Trump is, what Trump is revealing to be the hypocrisy of, 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 of the order he overthrew. So it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a powerful symbol. So, Greg, what happens when a country outlives its myth? Well, <laughs> it's, uh, what happens is um, you have to, I guess, optimistically, you have to, you have to find new myths. I mean, and, 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 and myths aren't just lies, and they're not just not mirages. They're ways in which ideas about the way the world ought to be correspond somewhat to the way the world is. And um, and you have to and you have to come up with something that that um, that can that could that could counter the not just not just Trump at the margins, but the, the but the foundational premises of Trumpism. And and I think that was hopefully starting to see that among among certain certain politicians who who are staking out new ground. Can anyone win uh, an election today? Uh, let's say the presidential election. By running like Trump did against the post-war's uh, post-war order's legacy, including policies such uh, at the south of the border and in the Middle East that have created untold number of refugees and criminals, as you point out, as well as being against endless war, austerity, free trade, unfettered corporate power, and extreme inequality, can anyone win? And is that uh, what that kind of campaign? And is that why Bernie voters voted for Trump because Bernie too is against those same things? Well, I yeah, I don't know about. The, I, I'm not. I don't know. I'm not that in the weeds about the the the, the voter data. But um, I I I think that that is is the case. I think that um, I think that that's what's at stake. I, I think that um, you know. I I also want to point out that Trump might run against the post-war order, but he basically had just you know he he basically is just accelerating many of the same policies, right? And that's why the wall and the nativism becomes becomes central and becomes important because you wind, I mean, you just accelerate the privatization, you just accelerate the deregulation, you accelerate all of the, all of the elements, you accelerate the interventionism, you accelerate the bombing, you accelerate the, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the fossil fuel dependency, all of the, all of the elements of the old order that, that, that has brought us to the current crisis and 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 that's why the wall becomes becomes central. But I, to go back to your question, it does seem like we've we've moved we've moved on. That that um, that there is not going to be. I mean, maybe some Howard Schultz, or <laughs> maybe there could be some kind of reestablishment of the political center. But but uh, I mean, my hunch is that there's no turning back. So Reagan, you quote Reagan, Ronald Reagan saying. Nothing is impossible. There are no limits to growth. Has Reagan and Reaganism then been proven wrong? Did Trump prove Reaganism was wrong? Well, I don't know if Reaganism was wrong in the sense that it was a new, it was a mythology, and and it was a mythology to, as as I mentioned that that you know it's not that it's just a lie. There is a way in which um, it's a vision of the world as it ought to be, connected with to the to 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 how it actually is. But I think that certainly the the 
the prime contradictions of Reaganism and uh, a restoration of a of a political order in which freedom is defined as as freedom restraint is is has reached its limit, has hit its wall, so to speak, and and um, and the question is if if the question but the question is I guess is I mean here's the here's here's here ultimately is what I think is is the problem confronting social democrats is that there is there has never been a moment of political progress in the past that wasn't dependent on expansion. We can go down the line. Jacksonian democracy was dependent on Indian removal. The Civil War was dependent on abolishing slavery. Was dependent on on pacification of the West. Uh, progressive movement was was predicated on expansionism, uh, suffrage, and 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 and, tr- and gomperism. Tr- you know, reform trade unionism was dependent on supporting World War One. You can just go down the line. So. Now we're at a moment in which political reform and the emergence of a kind of reform coalition can't come to power riding on the back of the expansion of national power in the world. So, so how do the new social democrats uh, uh, implement a reform agenda now that reform and expansion is delinked? And, and, and to, to, to the degree that expansion is still taking place, it actually will always undermine and and corrupt reform and and prevent a kind of any prevent reform movements from gathering its energies and 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 coming to political power i i think that that is the main question so reaganism was able to gather energies and put forward a credible coalition a realignment uh we might be living in a moment when when no political coalition can actually do that anymore and so in we might be in a moment of of permanent disarticulation or, uh, or to use Trump's phrase, a, a kind of state of emergency that, that, that in which there is no exit from. And there you can tell that Greg is far more qualified to be interviewing our next guest than I am. Uh, we've been speaking with historian Greg Grandin. He is author of <laughs> The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Uh, I got just two last questions for you. And one just is kind of a little bit more quick. You talk about how the American border is no longer just at our physical borders, how it is everywhere. And then you mention that it's gotten to the point where there are constitution-free zones here in the United States, including the entire state of Michigan. I am going to be going to Michigan soon, and now that they have legalized recreational marijuana, I plan on buying some. So, Greg, (laughs) how concerned should I be about going to Michigan in a constitution-free zone? Well, I don't know if that I don't know if they're that concerned about marijuana. Obviously, they they have their sights set on other targets. I mean, but but uh, you know that point. Uh, Todd Miller is a great journalist and, and analyst of the border. He, he talks about the way the border is just expanded and extended inward and extended outward. You know, to Mexico's border with South with. Guatemala is now considered the U.S. border. Uh, borders are inward in the sense that there's been an expansion of the authority of, of, of law enforcement agencies like ICE to operate within national territory. I mean, we used to have front. The whole world used to be frontier. And the point is that the whole world now is border. 
One last question for you, Greg. We've been speaking with historian Greg Grandin, author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. And I just want to mention that Greg is an author of many incredible books, including 2009's Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City, which was a finalist for the National for the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the National Book Critic Circle Award. Uh, we've also had him on in the past to talk about his amazing work, uh, Empire's Workshop, which won the Bancroft uh, Prize, and a couple of his books have been uh, on our listed on our show as the best to be featured on our show in the past, back in 2014 and 2015. His book, The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and Deception in the New World, for a lot of people who have been hearing the discussions about black history on our show of late, that's a book you should definitely read. And again, Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statement, is a must-read as well. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Grandin, and you can find out more about Greg at greggrandin.com. One last question, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, maybe after Trump is gone, what is understood as the political center can be reestablished. But it seems doubtful. Politics appears to be moving in two opposite directions. One way, nativism beckons. Donald Trump, for now, is the standard bearer. The other way, socialism calls to younger voters who, burdened by debt and confronting a bleak labor market, are embracing social rights in numbers never seen before. Coming generations will face a stark choice, a choice long deferred by the emotive power of frontier universalism, but set forth in vivid relief by recent events. The choice between barbarism and socialism, or at least social democracy. So, Greg, right now, which does it look like we're going to choose, barbarism or socialism? (laughs) Well, the optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect, you know, I... I, uh... You know, uh, 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 I'm not hedging, but probably both. We're going to have barbarism and we're going to have socialism. At least for the foreseeable future. Well, I'm enjoying the future that you've painted for us, Greg. It <laughs> sounds like a blast. I can't wait to enjoy it with you. Greg, it's always great to hear your voice. And uh, this has been far too long since you've been on our show in the, uh, since 2015. So we got to get you back on the show uh, and, and real quick. I always love hearing your voice, and it's always great to hear your analysis. Thank you so much for being on our show. Great. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's always great. We're all going to die. This is Hal. Go to WNUR.org before you die and click on Phonathon to donate now to Chicago Sound Experiment and choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, t-shirts, hats, and hoodies or do your own show here on WNUR or get all that and the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Do we have any more donors we want to mention or anything, or should I just keep moving into the question from hell? Uh, Yes, thank you, Carol T., thank you, Jeremy S., and thank you, Benjamin S. The Democratic Socialists of America and their Democratic Socialism is scaring the crap out of everybody on the right. They are so afraid of what the DSA and its adherents are saying that they've stooped to old, played-out, commie scare tactics to frighten their base. We'll learn what democratic socialism really is, what it has to do with Bernie Sanders, and just how much a democratic socialist could get done with the power of the presidency when we have another returning guest on the show, Jacobin Magazine staff writer Megan Day, who posted an article last year that recently got the attention of Glenn Beck, who talked about Megan's writing at the recent Conservative Political Action Conference. The article was headlined Democratic Socialism Explained by a Democratic Socialist, 
it's not just New Deal liberalism. Last month, Megan posted the story, Bernie is running, thank God, and her writing in the new print edition of Jacobin is called Wielding the Imperial Presidency. Alex, I gotta ask you something. What have you been up to on social media? Oh, uh, sorry, I've just been posting a bunch of stuff. I wasn't ready for that one. I was just <laughs> walking in a, a new volunteer actually just showed up, so we're having a chat. This is Jonah, say, oh, hey, wave Jonah. through the glass. Uh, so I've been, I've been posting stuff. Yeah, but you've had there were a lot of things that people were sharing, like the Macron story. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Let me pull that. <laughs> I have everything settled uh, for the question from hell stuff. So just pull <laughs> Sorry up, about that, sir. No, I probably should have been ready for yeah, this. Probably should have, we should probably have a more detailed <laughs> rundown, too. But then, this is not the media. This is hell. If you want to show your support for This is Hell and WNUR, go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now. There's a whole bunch of gifts that we will give to you for different donation levels, including doing your own radio show here on WNUR. If you donate, $150 or more. All right, Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Let's try it now. You want to talk about that Macron story? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, first off, there's a really good piece that uh, you sent me, actually, called Columbia's War of Neoliberal Economics that yeah. links uh, a lot of the murders of human rights defenders uh, within, uh, within Columbia uh, to... Uh, neoliberal economics and sort of the political uh, regime that comes with that. That was really great. Um, also, and yeah, the Macron thing that we posted um, was about Emmanuel Macron seeking to redefine uh, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. So good luck, everyone, with uh, trying to not be anti-Semitic when you're also anti-Zionist. They said people, Marine, people love that one, too. They said Marine Le Pen was shocked. She said that she wouldn't have gone that far. Like, I don't know, does that mean that you're anti-Semitic or does that like... Yeah, with uh, friends like this. I don't know what that means. Um, Also, uh, and I wondered whether this is even worth posting, but people really liked it, is uh, Jair Bolsonaro posted a uh, (laughs) charming porn video on Twitter the other day. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I I actually, I found it because he posted uh, on Twitter actually earlier, before he deleted the video, he posted a follow-up that just said uh, in Portuguese, uh, what is a golden shower? So I wrote to Brian uh, Mir, who was actually writing an article about that uh, right away, and then he actually got me that. So I figured out, I won. I learned what a golden shower was. So. Oh, you didn't no, know no, that? No, before? I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Say, I'm just kidding. Cow. But I did learn why uh, Jair Bolsonaro was uh, tweeting about it, and uh, that was a uh, what a day. <laughs> what a gross day. In case anybody is wondering what a golden shower is, it's, a, it's just a solid gold shower. That's all it is. It's kind of fancy, really. You can rate this as hell on Facebook. And after 196 respondents so far, we have the highest rating, five out of five stars. If you rate This Is Hell, leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We'll read your rating and uh, comment on the air. This week, Rick gave us five stars and wrote of This Is Hell, I have been very busy of late. I've just arrived. Would you all please pour me a good cold vodka martini up, shaken, not stirred. I feel that as a partaker in this social media echo chamber, bloody hell, this is hell? Thanks, Rick, I guess. Remember, listeners, never drink and give online ratings. You, too, can go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, I'll read yours. On the air. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, 
What's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? What's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? All replies right on air. Right now, the winner of this week's question from hell gets a book we featured on last week's show, Lee Phillips's, I like saying that, Lee Phillips's and Michal Rozworski's The People's Republic of Walmart, How the World's Biggest Corporation corporations are laying the foundation for socialism. Again, the question from Al is, what's the first thing you're buying from the new nationalized Walmart? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you may win Lee and Michael's book, The People's Republic of Walmart. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from Al, because... Uh, what are you buying from the nationalized Walmart? Austin H. says, a drone. Do you think a nationalized Walmart would offer the same drones the U.S. military uses or just the same unnationalized drones they have now? <laughs> Lauren M. says, hammerders. Hammerders. Yeah, I think that was a hamburgers uh, joke. Uh, Peter B. says, buying, but it'll all be free. John M. says, tea, all the tea. <laughs> Nathan L. says, my own technical McNuke to demonstrate the power of the planned market to the right libertarians. <laughs> Warren L. says, vodka. What else do they stock? <laughs> Who's that? Uh, that was Warren L. I'm thinking a lot of people are going to be buying the same things they buy from the non-nationalized Walmart in yeah. this thread. Yeah. Uh, Vincent T. says, I don't buy anything from that s-hole. It's all plastic slave-made garbage designed to break. Not sure how this is the means of production is to be seized when the production is literally trash. <laughs> Stephen S. says, those chimichangas in the blue package because that's the only thing I eat. <laughs> What are you buying from the nationalized Walmart? Pete V says, Jardinera. They have the best Jardinera and beverage napkins. Sebastian M says, My dignity. Eleftheria L says, Birth control pills and RU486. <laughs> Michael D says, A greeter. Sarah M says, Government cheese. Wait, Michael M, was that a greeter? Uh, a greeter, yes. Uh, Nick E says, Cuban cigars. No, bioluminescent fish skin condoms. No, 18-year-old McCollin scotch. No, fentanyl-flavored big league chew. No, a Shakespearean sex robot. Sorry, I'm bipolar. That was uh, Nick E. Fabio L says, cheap credit. Jane uh, Andrea J says, Twizzlers, duh. Adam M says, nationalized underwear. What are you buying from the new nationalized Walmart? Laddie O says, proletariat brand scrunchies. <laughs> Ronaldo M says, expensive European liquor and cheap Canadian drugs. <laughs> Mati says, cheap plastic S. Or crap. But uh, now made in the USA. Take that, China. Chandler H says, communist states of America flag, obviously. Edward M says, CBD gummies. <laughs> Chris H. says, the Walton family chainsaw and wood chipper set, aisle six. <laughs> Colin J. says, victory gin and whatever the chocolate ration is. What are you buying from the newly nationalized Walmart? Wade M. says, boxo wine and large capacity magazines. Uh, Chris L. says, tater trots. This is my favorite response. <laughs> what was that? Chris L. says, tater trots. Zach A. says, my three favorite things to buy at Walmart currently, camp fuel, Robitussin, and pepperoni slices. <laughs> Nathaniel T. says, a 36-pack of TPUSA. <laughs> Owen C. posted a link that I'm opening against my better judgment. <laughs> oh, to Gardetto's Special Request Roasted Garlic Rye Chips 14-ounce bag. Yeah, people are just buying the same crap from Walmart <laughs> after the nationalization. Uh, Mike R. says, douche and tampons for all the whining. Wow. Angela E. says, Angela M. says, a Russian flag. <laughs> Harold F. says, weed. Mick C Finally. says Mick C says the means of production with a side of fetishized commodities, no ketchup. Marcus L says the Walton family themselves, of course, divide the family members among the number of Walmart stores and draw a pool. The eldest one, or the greatest stockholder in the pool is an alternate, is always set as the cornerstone for good luck. 
Jack B says, sweatpants and a gun. Seems very American. What are you buying from the nationalized Walmart? Steve L says, nothing. The shelves will be empty. All right, Steve. Aaron B says, Trump steaks, Trump water, Trump vodka, and Trump suit. Kofifi. David W. says, a U.S. flag because I'll finally feel patriotic, but it'll be an imported flag because it's still Walmart. <laughs> Jessica B. says, a hammer and then a sickle. <laughs> Jacob M. says, toothbrush so it can be taken shortly after. Twin, Por- Twin Ports Democratic Socialists of America said, you mean we can't shoplift anymore? <laughs> no. Mark A. says, PBS children's show branded ammo. <laughs> Ford L. says, dick pills. Mark R. says, the <laughs> means of production. I went to school with that guy. Uh, the guy who needs dick pills? <laughs> no, just I'm, a guy named Dick Pills. <laughs> dick pill. uh, Micah D. Sa- Mika, sorry, D. says freedom. Also, I really like the trail mix that has those M&M chocolates in it. <laughs> Ariana C. says one strong palate, uh, one strong palate, curry, one baby, one palate of baby powder, and one palate of Neosporin. <laughs> Gorilla G. says a yellow vest and a tennis racket. <laughs> Gregory M. says... Hercules, Hercules, and then posted a horrifying tweet of uh, the U.S. Department of Defense tweeting that uh, image of a Ugh. the Angel of Death gunship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Andrew T. says, separated border children. <laughs> Michael W. says, a sex robot customized to resemble my seventh wife. Mm, I'm glad they made a sex robot. Max I. says, robot sex-inclusive content. <laughs> there you go. Ein H. says, steak grown in a worker-owned lab. <laughs> Matt M. says, Gonna get me some kale burgers. What are you buying from the nationalized Walmart? Jeffrey O says, uncontrolled airspace. Jeffrey B says, or Jeffrey D says, buy nothing. They're going to give me everything I need according to my needs. Zach B says, bread. Aaron D says, frozen freedom fries. Lee C says, an open source and open hardware mobile phone, which is easy to repair and can be verified by its user not to spy on anyone. A couple more. Douglas E says, Raul, a man from Nepal, went down to tear the went to tear down the wall. He bought it a la carte, a ball, a shawl, and spare parts. Walmart, not too big to fail. That's the last limerick I'm going to read on. Uh, yeah. This is a question from Oh, and a couple more. Uh, via Twitter, a couple people responded. Paul says, Chavismo O's. Artificer says, Thoughts and Prayers, Economy Size. Monetary Magic says, Affordable and com- Comfortable Toilet Paper. Lots of it. Never thought of toilet paper as comfortable. Yes. Daniel H. says, a bicycle in, in anticipation of us banning cars next. Adam says, TIH merch. Sweet. And finally, Kimmy R. says, American flag socks. Six pack. So I liked Warren L. saying vodka, but Alex was absolutely correct. It's already something you can buy at Walmart. So I'm going to kind of eliminate those. Even though Stephen S. saying chimichangas and those blue packages because I live on them. So, Michael M. said a greeter. I like that. And I did like Chris L. saying tater trots. My response to the question from hell, what's the first thing you're buying from the nationalized Walmart? Cheese. Seriously, the government makes really, really good cheese. Oh, and weed. The government makes really, really good weed, too. And this week's winner is... Jessica B. for saying a hammer and then a sickle. A hammer and then a sickle. Because I don't know if you can actually buy a sickle right now at Walmart. Maybe. I don't know. But I liked a hammer and a sickle. Jessica, you have won the book, The People's Republic of Walmart. And we'll have that in the mail for you 
host haste. Congratulations. You've won a copy of the book featured on last week's show, Lee Phillips and Michael Rosworski's The People's Republic of Walmart. Next week's prize for the Question from Hell winner will be a book we just discussed on this week's show, Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. So tune in next week to find out what the Question from Hell is. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can see the uh, Question from Hell posted there and reply there, as well as on Twitter if you follow us at thisishellradio. Go to wnur.org right now. Click on donate now to donate now to Chicago Sound Experiment and choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, t-shirts, hats, and hoodies. Or you can do your own show here on WNUR or get all of that and the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Phonathon now. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge this week. 2251 West Devon happens every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink. Get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by this week, including Robert, Rachel, Rachel, Alex, Leo, Joe, Wally, Ronaldo, Pete, Jordan, Tom, and everyone else who joined us, but I can't remember because we were partying way too hard in the Second Story studio space upstairs, which has a new art show. So if you want to hang out and with us and see the new art, you too can join us at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from our new studio, every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago. Coming up on this week's Phonathon special, we'll describe what democratic socialism is, what it means for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and what a democratic socialist could do in office with the power of the presidency. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin breaks the Overton window. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Go to WNUR right now, click on Donate Now, and show your support for This Is Hell and WNUR.org. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Conservatives, the right, are really scared of democratic socialism. They're cowering with fear. So there's got to be something good about it, right? Here to explain democratic socialism, what it has to do with Bernie Sanders, and what a democratic socialist with the power of the presidency can actually get done, returning to This Is Hell, Jacobin Magazine staff writer Megan Day posted an article last year that recently got the attention of Glenn Beck, who talked about Megan's writing at the recent conservative political action conference. That article was headlined, Democratic Socialism Explained by a Democratic Socialist. It's not just New Deal liberalism. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Megan. Thanks for having me. Last month, Megan posted this story, Bernie is Running, Thank God. And her article, her newest article in the new print edition of Jacobin, is called Wielding the Imperial Presidency. You can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan M. Day, and you can find all of Megan's writing at Jacobin Magazine. Dot com. Jacobin shared a minute and a half of Glenn Beck's speech where he is quoting your Vox article on the DSA in a very scary, foreboding t- tone, as if you your writing is some sort of self-implication. Beck tells the audience at the CPAC meeting that some people think the DSA is just FDR's New Deal policies with a fresh coat of paint. Beck cites your article saying uh, where you write, Democratic Socialism Explained by a Democratic Socialist. Here's the the truth 
in the long run, democratic socialists want to end capitalism. Beck then interjects, we've turned the call, we've uh, traced the call, and it's coming from inside the House and the Senate. And he thinks that's hilarious. How much support is the DSA actually getting in the House and the Senate? Is there any other support outside of just Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? There's not, you know, there's not a ton of support, which is to say that we don't have the strength electorally at the moment to actually push through a democratic socialist agenda by any means. But it's not just Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's also Rashida Tlaib. And then, of course, there's Bernie Sanders, who is not a DSA member, but who exemplifies the DSA's short-term program, which is a social democratic program intended to pass things like Medicare for All, free college tuition, a living wage, and other things that would empower working-class people for the many fights ahead on the road between social democracy and democratic socialism. I want to make this point right at the beginning. What is the difference in strategies, in organization, between the Democratic Socialists of America, between the DSA, and the Green Party? Because I have had a lot of people tell me, I don't understand why people are so interested in this third party, the Democratic Socialists of America, when there already is a third party, the Green Party, that has approximately four or five times as many people in it. So what is the difference between the Green Party and the DSA? Because I think this is something that needs to be stressed. Well, I think that the Green Party is absolutely a noble effort, but in many ways it actually demonstrates what is one of the hallmarks of DSA. It's not that we're less radical, um, which some people might uh, be tempted to draw that conclusion based on the fact that we are totally fully in support of running Democratic Socialist candidates on the Democratic Party ballot line when it's appropriate. It's actually that because we are socialists, we are, which is different from many progressives in the Green Party, not all, but many, we have an analysis of power that involves building a mass base for our politics, first and foremost. And we know that because of the two-party system in the United States, it's not actually very likely that you're going to reach mass numbers of people and persuade them to your ideas unless you're using the biggest platform available. This is a, you know, using the Democratic Party ballot line on occasion is actually a strategy born of an acknowledgement of the left's institutional weakness over the last four decades. We have to use the channels that are available to us to promote our politics in order to get mass numbers of people interested in talking about inequality, interested in talking about class divisions in society, and ultimately interested in engaging in workplace struggles and mass protests and the kinds of things that are the prerequisite for building an actual mass party, an independent mass party, that can actually run candidates who get more attention than Green Party candidates typically do. Uh, Glenn Beck also quotes your writing where you write, uh, quote, many observers see groups like DSA pushing for policies like Medicare for all and decide that we must actually be something like New Deal liberals who are simply confused about the meaning of socialism. Medicare for all is an instructive example. Medicare for all is not socialism. It would only uh, nationalize ins- insurance, not the whole health care system. Democratic socialists ultimately want something more like the British National Health Service. Beck then asks his audience, so why aren't they going for that? Well, we could ask ourselves, why weren't they going for Medicare for all when we were talking about Obamacare? What happens when Beck conflates what the DSA wants in 2019 with what the Democratic Party wanted a decade ago, especially when 
we had guests on over and over and over who were pushing for universal health care at that time. What happens when Glenn Beck and the right isn't aware that there was activism for actual universal health care 10 years ago? And what happens when he conflates that with the DSA? I think that what you're seeing here on the right is actually a very confused and incoherent response to the threat being posed by DSA. Um, I think that they want to both deflate and overinflate our importance. So you see a little bit of that incoherence there. They want to say that we're exactly like New Deal liberals and we're just confused and have sort of aesthetic trappings of radicalism. But they also want to say that we pose a unique threat that's never been seen before in order to rile up their base. The great irony being that it's precisely people like Glenn Beck who have been calling everything socialist that has even a remote, remotely any characteristics of, you know, expanded government or expanded welfare for the last several decades, leading to a sort of hollowing out of the meaning of the term socialism and creating new avenues for actual socialists to push our policies, especially in light of some objective material conditions that have emerged. Um, you know, wages have been stagnating, living costs have been rising. That's been happening for decades. But it was really in 2008 with the financial crisis that the uh, that capitalism's promises started to wear thin for actual individuals uh, by the millions. And suddenly, you know, everything is being called socialist that might be even a moderate reform that would help people. <laughs> and, and, and now people are starting not to associate socialism with the old 20th century taboo with Stalinism or with dictators, but instead to associate it with apparently anything that actually helps working class people get on their feet in a cutthroat competitive capitalist economic environment. So that's actually been great for us. And I think it's it's good if they want, if the right wants to keep doing that, if they want to continue to say that, you know, every Medicare for all is like a socialist takeover or whatever. I think it's actually just warming people up to the idea that socialism is not taboo. It's not a dirty word. Um, but we also do have to make a specific intervention. And that was the point of my piece in Vox. I wrote that last year at a time when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had just won and there was uh, an attempt, not on the part necessarily of conservatives, but on the part of liberals, on the part of the CNN and MSNBC set to deflate our importance by saying, don't worry, don't worry. Democratic socialism is bursting onto the scene, but it actually doesn't want to overthrow capitalism. It, it wants to, it, you know, post offices and, and things like that are, are democratic socialism. They just want more of that. And they were saying, we just want to be Scandinavian social democracies. So a correction was actually very necessary at that particular moment. We wanted to say, yes, we want to move in the direction of the Scandinavian social democracies. But what's happened to the Scandinavian social democracies? Because you have a tiny elite of capitalists who still own the means of production, they've been able to accumulate wealth and leverage influence in politics and actually lead to neoliberal reforms in the Scandinavian social democracies, imposing austerity, making massive budget cuts, and actually making life worse for many working people in Scandinavia. Though, to be fair, it's always a lot better than life for working people in the United States. Because we see that happening in places like Scandinavia, and because socialists have had this analysis of the instability of social democracy for, you know, 100 years or more, we are making the argument that we want to move in the direction of Scandinavian social democracy with a specific goal in mind, which is to actually undermine, eventually eliminate the power of that tiny capitalist elite few who are able to control the levers of politics precisely because they control the means of production and are able to accumulate wealth, right? How does the New Deal not define democratic socialism? How did the New Deal 
falls short, if you will, when it comes to being a democratic socialist experiment or program? Well, the New Deal was fantastic. The New Deal was great. It was an introduction of, you know, social demo- much needed social democracy in the United States. It sprung from the sort of progressive movement. But there's also another detail to keep in mind about the New Deal, which is that it basically imposed a compromise between capital and labor. Now, that's not bad on the face of it. It just so happened that that compromise in that specific historical context led to a regrouping of capitalist forces such that they were actually, over the course of the next you know, 50 years, really hollow out and hamstring unions, the labor movement, working class institutions of all kinds. We are actually proposing that we move, that we implement massive reforms on the scale of the New Deal that have many of the characteristics of the New Deal. But the distinction between socialists and perhaps you would say progressives who are going to be working in tandem to get those reforms accomplished is that socialists see them as basically helping create the conditions for continued struggle of working people against capital. Progressives might see them as, you know, rectifying an error and actually stabilizing or humanizing capitalism. That doesn't mean that our programs aren't going to overlap. They're actually going to probably overlap for a very long time because it's going to take a long time in this country to actually see big reforms, big social democratic reforms like the New Deal, or in this case, like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, or tuition-free college, and we'll be working side-by-side with each other. It's just that socialists have an analysis that says when you institute those reforms, it's extremely important not to let your forces disperse. They actually need to be strong, they need to regroup, and they need to keep pushing, and they need to use the gains that they've won through the reforms to actually build their ranks and push for you know more and more ambitious things. You write democratic socialism. We're going to get back to AOC here just for a second. You write democratic socialism, a term that has burst onto the uh, political scene since the unexpected win of democratic socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a New York primary for a House House of Representatives seat. Now, again, this article was written back in August 2018, but it was quoted extensively this week by Glenn Beck at the CPAC conference or uh, Conservative Party Action Conference. Why does one congressional seat make such a big difference? Are both supporters and opponents of AOC exaggerating the importance and impact of her victory? After all, it's only one congressional seat, even though there are a couple of others. As Vox reported shortly after last uh, November's election, a few openly white supremacist candidates, including several with ties to white nationalists like Representative Steve King, who faced mounting pressure for his past comments and links to far-right groups, won their races. Vox also mentions Florida State Majority Whip Steve Scalise, who once reportedly described himself as David Duke without the baggage, referencing the former former KKK leader, and Ron DeSantis won in his election against Democratic Andrew Gillum for governor of Florida. Vox reports DeSantis also had a personal uh, history of ties to conservative pundits with white nationalist histories. So what's the bigger deal? Because this frightens me. A few DSA members winning congressional elections or several white nationalists winning theirs? I actually think that you raise a really good point that obviously there are insurgencies from both the left and the right in Congress right now. But it's not wrong to say that this is a big deal, that we have DSA members in Congress. And it's not because of the specific power that these individuals are going to have in Congress. After all, Congress is populated by politicians who are enormously hostile to their vision. That's not what makes it a big deal. What makes it a big deal is that Rashida Tlaib and especially Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have actually burst onto the scene as absolute rock stars because people 
really, really like the political vision that they're putting forward. That's why the right is so threatened by them, is that they see this. People all over the country, by the millions, are absolutely captivated by this positive political vision of redistribution and of equality. And uh, the far-right congressional members, they don't really have that same reach. It's the reach that really makes, that, that sets these victories apart. Um, you know, AOC is on every every channel all the time, in part because the right is fear-mongering about her, but in large part because people absolutely love her in the United States. She's very beloved. Never, we haven't seen a, a, a congressional freshman get this kind of attention, perhaps ever. And it's, it's because she's charismatic on one hand, but it's also because the things that she's saying are things that have gone unspoken in American politics for a long time. You saw in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, people started to become really concerned completely independently of what was being said by their elected leaders. They were becoming concerned on their own about inequality, about massive upward wealth redistribution that leaves millions of people behind. In 2011, you saw that manifest in the Occupy Wall Street movement. It was just a sort of raw outpouring of rage. There wasn't a lot of institutional organization behind it, but you saw that there were stirrings. You saw it again in 2014 with the Black Lives Matter movement. People are not content with the status quo. They know that something has to change. And really, it really turned a corner in 2016, starting in 2015, when Bernie Sanders ran for president. And you saw that out of nowhere, completely out of left field, so to speak, he became he became a real challenger for the Democratic Party frontrunner Hillary Clinton. And that's because the movement was already happening on the ground. That's what makes people afraid of Bernie Sanders, and it's what makes people afraid of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's because they can tell that the forces in this country of millions of ordinary people are actually very attracted to this vision, and it does spell a sea change for American politics. You're right. Democratic socialists want to end capitalism by pursuing a reform agenda today in an effort to revive a politics focused on class hierarchy and inequality in the United States. The eventual goal is to transform the world to promote everyone's needs rather than to produce massive profits for a small handful of citizens. What do you mean by ending capitalism? Do you mean by ending money, ending wage labor? And is the best definition, the most succinct definition of democratic socialism, everyone's needs rather than the massive profits for a small handful? Yeah, I like Jeremy Corbyn's formulation for the many, not the few. It's really caught on here in the United States. We've had democratic socialists running on that slogan. And I think that even progressives can get behind that, even if they're not ready to say we should end capitalism, because they do understand that society at present is arranged for the few and not the many. Socialists do have a distinct analysis, though, which I touched on earlier, which is that until you actually replace private ownership of productive assets, that is, individuals basically being dictators of workplaces, bosses, of course, you're not, you're not actually going to ever have a society that's arranged for the many and not the few. Um, so that, that's the analysis that we're coming in with. It's a Marxist analysis. Uh, it, it has you know, occasionally been branded as extreme and radical, but it's, it's really no more extreme or radical than the idea that individuals, just by virtue of their birth or their sheer luck, should be able to sit back and reap the profit that workers are generating through their labor. An example of this is Jeff Bezos. He uh, is a fabulously wealthy person, and he would like to tell you perhaps that he is self-made. But when Amazon workers go on strike, there was a three-hour strike, I believe, in Minnesota just the other day. Suddenly, Bezos has to uh, compromise with these workers and give them concessions. Why is that? It's because workers are holding profits hostage. Well, that's a clue 
into the reality, which is that workers are actually generating the profits through their labor, right? If they weren't, then strikes wouldn't be so successful. So that's the reality that socialists are actually trying to examine and argue that we can have a different reality. We can perhaps have in the future uh, workplace cooperatives. Perhaps we can have democratically elected leadership of firms. We can have firms that compete with each other in markets that are not governed by a principle of profit maximization. And that's a debate that happens on the socialist left. There's a sort of spectrum there. Is it all going to be, you know, totally centrally planned economy or is it going to have some sort of market that doesn't actually revolve around individuals who own everything and who sit back and reap the profits of other people's labors simply because they own everything? You had an article, Bernie's Running, Thank God. One of the things that I keep hearing on CNN, MSNBC, whatever media I've been reading of late is uh, an analysis that you hear from pundits that there is a fear amongst Democratic Party members that the party might move too far to the left and therefore not be attracting, you know, the Reagan Democrats, the centrists that they're trying to get into the fold how much of a concern do you have that the Democratic Party might lose the 2020 presidential election because it has gone too far to the left? I don't really share that concern. I actually think that the best person positioned to beat Donald Trump is Bernie Sanders for a very specific reason. Democrats are focusing on the ideology of individuals as though that were set in stone. They're saying we have to appeal to centrists, we have to appeal to moderates, we have to appeal to independents who sometimes vote Republican, as though these things were not subject to change. Bernie Sanders actually has a materialist understanding of politics. It's derived from the socialist tradition. And he says that people can change their ideology when they're presented with a better option that works for them materially. So if you're talking about realignment or reorganization of the party, I actually think that you're going to draw in more voters on the message that Bernie is running on, which is we should unite across lines of difference in order to and have uh, in order to uh, fight back against the people that we are most different from, who are the billionaires. And that, I think, is going to resonate with a lot of people, and it's probably going to move a lot of people who don't typically vote to the polls, which is another thing that pundits tend to overlook. Some people don't vote because they don't feel like politics are speaking to them at all. Bernie Sanders is talking about bread and butter issues in a very ambitious way. He's saying, I know that you struggle with health care. We're going to make health care free in this country, and we're going to do that by taxing the rich, and we have to unite in order to make it happen. I know that you struggle with college tuition and with the means to further your education, to position yourself in the economy to actually make a decent living. We're going to unite together against the billionaire class that doesn't want us to have those things. We're going to tax them and we're going to use the money to make tuition-free public university in the United States. I think that's going to appeal to a wide swath of people that you actually haven't seen appealed to before. And I actually think that it will probably jump across the aisle and pull in a lot of people who often vote Republican who are hearing a message that they've never heard before. See, Democrats just have not tried this before, at least not in recent history. So they're, they're kind of the playing field that they're looking at. They're taking for granted that the ideological splits are like set in stone, but they're really not if you have a new formulation and a new way of appealing to people politically. So let's get to one of the things that I keep seeing on social media that's just driving me nuts, and that is uh, people attacking Bernie Sanders and, uh, their, and his supporters for being people who supported Donald Trump. That is, when Hillary, when Bernie Sanders was running, you can look at the outcomes of primaries and you can see that Bernie Sanders has a large amount of votes in certain areas and that some of those votes 
then went over to the Trump side and not over to Hillary Clinton. Therefore, by all these people on social media, that completely uh, invalidates any Bernie Sanders campaign because clearly it's just a front for Trump voters. What would you? How do you react to that kind of criticism of Bernie Sanders supporters that they're nothing more than Trump supporters? Well, I don't hear it often because I think that it's actually kind of patently absurd and most people realize that because they know a few Bernie supporters in their lives and they they realize that's not true. But also the the data contradicts it, which is to say that when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama squared off in the primary, the number of Hillary Clinton voters who then went on to vote for Barack Obama is actually less than the number of Bernie Sanders supporters who went on to vote for Hillary Clinton. So this is just easily disproven. I think everyone should arm themselves with talking points if it comes up. But again, I'll reiterate, this is not an organic talking point. Ordinary people are not coming to this conclusion on their own. They're being fed this by uh, the you know uh, establishment loyalists within the Democratic Party who are constantly looking for new angles of attack against Bernie Sanders because he represents such a threat to the internal power structure of the Democratic Party. This is what you have to realize is that in 2016, the Democratic Party assumed that what it had always done was going to work, which is that they anoint uh, a candidate who they would prefer. They organize on behalf of that candidate. That candidate becomes the front runner. That candidate wins the primary. And then everything is sort of smooth sailing. 2016 was the first time that you really saw an insurgent left candidacy that actually appealed to the Democratic Party's base that actually demonstrated a split between the base and the establishment. So this is very terrifying, specifically to careerists within the Democratic Party power structure who rely on that power structure to get donations for them, to make professional connections for them, and basically to keep their careers afloat. I mean, it's it's very threatening to both their worldview and to their future livelihood, especially because a lot of these people don't have strong ideologies of their own. So the way that they're running campaigns is not on the basis of ideology or on politics, on the basis of professional connections and experience and sort of electability, suitability for the job, and, and frankly, you know, club membership with the Democratic Party elite. So the fact that Bernie Sanders actually made a very significant showing against Hillary Clinton in 2016, and the fact that he's emerged as the frontrunner without the party's blessing here in 2019, is, is, has got these people quaking in their boots. And they're just looking for any explanation that they can to feed to people to, you know, try to turn them against Bernie Sanders to make them feel like he's a danger to uh, the Democratic Party, that he is going to undermine the Democratic Party's ability to actually, you know, defeat Donald Trump. When I just I just don't think that's the case. And I think most people, most ordinary people also don't think it's the case unless they've encountered, you know, a high volume of this basically propaganda from the Democratic Party establishment. You also have an article in the new edition of Jacobin magazine that is paywalled for subscribers only. So you have to get the magazine or become an online subscriber. Your latest writing is entitled Wielding the Imperial Presidency. And this is yet another criticism of Bernie Sanders, often stated by people within the Democratic Party, Democratic Party loyalists. And that's that when in, if he did win the election, he couldn't get anything done. And that's reinforced by this belief that Barack Obama couldn't get anything done. No matter how much hope and change he wanted to bring about, it's just the mechanisms of how Washington works. He just couldn't get his agenda done. So as president, could Bernie get any of his agenda actually completed and finished? 
I'm glad you asked that. This is the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, in part driven by my belief that Bernie Sanders could actually win the primary and then go on to beat Donald Trump. So we just start thinking about these things. So the thing about Barack Obama is that he was a little stingy on the executive orders. He actually didn't, as the title of my piece says, wield the imperial presidency toward ambitious ends. Uh, An example of that was that there was an effort to try to get his education secretary to write off all student loans to for-profit colleges. And the education secretary, Arne Duncan, said, well, I can't do that because, you know, I don't have a democratic mandate. I'm not, I'm not elected. I just, you know, follow orders from, from the boss who is elected. In that situation, an executive order from Barack Obama to actually do exactly that, would, if it had materialized, would have eliminated that justification entirely, and you would have seen a different outcome. That's the kind of area where Barack Obama was just not particularly ambitious in using the tools that actually were at his disposal. And, of course, facing a hostile Congress is a different matter. I think that Bernie Sanders probably would use executive orders very differently than Barack Obama. And I laid out in this piece all of the different ways that he could do that. I think I have dozens of examples of things that he could just do completely unilaterally. Um, Of course, executive orders are ephemeral. They can be overturned. They can be ruled unconstitutional. But think about the way that Donald Trump has wielded executive orders. Some of the things that he's issued by executive order have, you know, gone on to just basically become the law of the land. Other things have been challenged. But even though they've been challenged and in some cases ruled unconstitutional, they've completely moved the goalposts of American politics. The travel ban has instituted a whole new set of considerations and discourses around immigration in this country in a way that's actually very alarming. And that's because Donald Trump is you know, quite bold, actually, much bolder than Obama in that way. I think that Bernie Sanders would be bold in that particular way from the left. So that's why I have a piece about what he could do by executive order. Some things he could do that would actually just materially change our country. Other things he could do would maybe have more of a propagandistic value and change the, you know, political conversation, which again would in turn lead to changing the material reality of our country over time. But I also want to touch on your point about having, facing a hostile Congress. This is actually a very big problem, but it's a problem that has some upsides. So in the socialist sort of like scenario on paper, which is maybe like a more ideal scenario, according to socialists, you would have an openly socialist presidential candidacy only when it's sort of the culmination of a very intensive, decades-long political organizing project. The candidate would arise like organically through the ranks of a dynamic, you know, powerful, organized left. You know, there would be very strong left-wing labor unions and community groups that are sort of knitted into tight coalition with each other and and a mass and this is the you know the this is the linchpin a mass political party with democratic membership structure unlike the democratic party and a credible means of disciplining a candidate and a, an analysis of power uh that favors you know uh fighting for the working class against capitalist elite okay so we don't have any of those things that's that's the downside is that bernie sanders it just didn't go down like that. Instead, you saw that socialism basically became, it went from being like a powerful taboo in the 20th century to basically like a tacit impossibility. Unions were completely hollowed out and hamstrung. And the organized left was really on the back foot. And it just so happened that Bernie Sanders, who hails from a previous era when class, class politics was more sort of on the table, he kind of happened to march to the beat of his own drum for several decades. And in a sort of happy historical coincidence, he stayed politically consistent. He stayed in good health. 
And he was personally willing to provide electoral leadership to a movement that started to get back on its feet, beginning with the 2008 financial crisis, which is something I went into earlier in this interview. So the real problem with this sequence of events is that there are very few serving politicians who are actually sympathetic to Bernie Sanders' politics. He's like coming out of nowhere. He's representing a movement on the ground, but that that movement is not reflected in the electoral ranks all the way between dog catcher and president. So this actually poses some some serious problems to him uh, in terms of passing anything in his ambitious agenda through Congress. But the only way to get out of this predicament is for a mass movement of ordinary people to create and exert its own pressure on politicians, pressure that rivals, you know, rivals the pressure exerted by capitalists. It's sort of the idea of turning a dictum, a capitalist dictum, to, you know, um, always be favoring, you know, the interests of profit into an ultimatum. Now you have a powerful mass movement that's uh, creating, you know, another set of pressures that lawmakers have to respond to, kind of regardless of where they fall on the ideological spectrum. And this can be accomplished through a number of means, like political strikes are a big one. If they tank profits or if they halt the normal functions of society, suddenly you're going to have to see lawmakers adjust whether or not they, you know, agree with Bernie Sanders. Uh, if the people do and if they're striking, then, you know, you see a new balance of power. The same is true for disruptive mass protests that have a popular character and also for, like, successful media campaigns that generate new moods in the electorate and that threaten politicians' careers because of that. So Bernie Sanders knows this. I think that he's smart enough to know this. And that is why he's revived in 2020 his new campaign slogan, which he bandied about a little bit last time, but now it's really come back in full force, is Not Me, Us. And he actually told a crowd in Iowa, and I have a quote, actually, that I can read to you. In Iowa, people were chanting, Bernie, Bernie. This was just a few days ago. And Bernie Sanders interjected, and he said, It ain't Bernie, it's you. It's not me, it's us. The crowd responded with a new chant. They said, not me, us, not me, us. And then he actually he actually explained himself. He had done the same thing in Brooklyn and then in Chicago at his two campaign stops before Iowa. But this time he explained himself. He said, the truth is that the powers that be are so powerful. They have so much money that no one person, not the best president in the world, can take them on alone. The only way we transform America is when millions of people stand up together and fight back. So the point that I'm trying to make is that he's not just flattering us. He's actually telling us that it's a political necessity, a strategic political necessity, that ordinary people go on strike, that they wage protests, that they, you know, that they create new moods in the electorate just by the sheer force of their rage and their passion in order to create new pressures that lawmakers actually have to respond to. This is actually really fantastic. I was telling you before about the downsides of this scenario compared to the one that, you know, socialists might have sketched out on paper. The upside of this scenario is that it's going to force Bernie Sanders to actually use the presidential office in a way that no other president has before. He will be facing a hostile Congress, and what he'll have to do is explain to people that we deserve the reforms that he's proposing. These people are standing in the way, and they need to raise hell in the streets in order to get any, in order to help him get anything done. That's going to be enormously empowering to the working class in this country on a political level, on a deep cellular level, too. And that's why democratic socialists, who, again, do be, desire something beyond New Deal liberalism, are so excited about the transformative potential of a Bernie Sanders campaign, despite the fact that he mostly focuses on social democratic reform. 
Megan, uh, right before we had you on the air, we were talking with historian Greg Grand, and I'm not too sure if you heard that conversation or not, but we ended up talking about uh, democratic socialism a tiny bit at the end because he had heard me teasing the fact that you were going to be on the show. So I have one last question for you, and as always, our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I'm paraphrasing Greg, so... If I'm taking him out of context in any way, I want to apologize. But what Greg asked was, and and this is just out of, I think, more curiosity than anything else. I don't think he was trying to make any sort of editorial statement. He was wondering, how can democratic socialism, how can it be implemented? How can it be put into place without further empowering the state? Doesn't that give more power to the state that democratic socialism is critical of? That's a really good question. It's a very long-term question and one that's really important to ask because of the failures of 20th century socialist experiments that empowered the state too much and empowered workers within the state too little. They were ultimately undemocratic. So it's one that we have to, you know, think critically about. But the counter that I would put forward to you is that the state has enormous power at this very moment, and it uses it to protect the interests of capital. So we're not actually talking about enhancing state power. We're about talking about changing state priorities. The, the, you know, the, the American state spends most of its energy figuring out ways to keep people from getting so agitated that they actually threaten you know, capitalist interests through max, mass extra parliamentary action. And that's what the Democratic Party's sort of like very minimal, you know, social democratic program is intended to do. Or on the other hand, how to just actively empower rich people to run roughshod over working people. That's the spectrum that we're working with in the state right now. Uh, the idea behind, you know, Medicare for all is not that you've seen this from Republicans, from conservatives. They're saying, well, I don't want the government to be, you know, all up in my business because I don't trust the government. Well, the reason that you don't trust the government at this particular moment is that the government doesn't have your interests at heart. So we actually do need to build a government and build a democracy that has the interests of working people at heart. It's going to be a long road. It's going to be difficult. We'll have new questions come up in the process of doing it that we've never considered before. But I think it's more or less illegitimate to argue that, you know, we're empowering the state to oppress working people if we pursue Medicare for all, considering that at the current moment, the state is actively trying to protect the interests of private insurance companies that are working against the interests of American people for the sheer fact that they have influence, they have power, and that's who the state under capitalism listens to. Megan, I really appreciate you being back on our show. Megan was on our show twice last year, and now she's been on again. If you go to our website, thisishell.com, and you just put in her name, Megan Day, you will be able to find all of those interviews online at thisishell.com. Megan, it's always a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks very much. Take care. Again, that's Jacobin Magazine staff writer Megan Day. You can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan M. Day. And you can find all of Megan's writing at JacobinMag.com. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp. This is hell. And if you want to make sure that capitalism doesn't become WNUR's pimp, go to WNUR.org, click 
on Donate Now to do just that. Donate Now to Chicago Sound Experiment. Choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, and hoodies, or do your show, do your own show here on WNUR. Or get all that and the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. This is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I'm putting money on the fact that you have Hefe on the line. I had him on the wrong line, so he's calling. He's unless he's planning on uh, pledging to WNUR's phoneathon, uh, he'll be calling on the other line shortly. Go to WNUR.org, click on donate now. It's easier than ever. All you have to do is go to a website and plug in some information. You don't have to talk to some Yahoo on the freaking phone. You don't have to do that anymore. All you have to do is just go to WNUR.org and click on donate now. If you donate ten bucks. You get the new 2019 Student Design WNUR sticker. 25 bucks, you get the sticker and a T-shirt. 40 bucks, you get the sticker and the new hat. Uh, 50 bucks, you get the sticker and the new hoodie. 55 bucks, you get the sticker, the T-shirt, and the hat. It goes on and on and on. Go to WNUR.org, click on Donate Now to see all of the different donation levels. And for $150, we have a very special gift. If you donate $150 or more, you will be invited to the WNUR studios to play a show as a guest DJ. And finally, for $200 or more, you get the sticker, T-shirt, the hat, the hoodie. You get to DJ your own live radio show here on WNUR. And apparently, there's a very special yet mysterious limited edition WNUR gift. So go now to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now. Alex, I know you have happy on the line. The window and the view. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst, that is, the drink. Three identical triplets. Have you met them? For a long time, they hadn't even met each other. They were separated at birth. Then, 20 years later, they were reunited. It was joyous. There were astounding parallels in their separate upbringings. There were stunning and amusing similarities between them. And then, things took a dark turn. Look, it's on Hulu. I'll try not to spoil anything, but I will probably fail. I'll jump in and fail right now. Their separation at birth was arranged by a theorist of hereditary psychology who had himself survived the Holocaust. Survived as in he was Jewish and didn't get killed. But this isn't about Jews, it's about ideas. The ideas the Nazi doctors explored about heredity and human nature and biology were medieval. Their methods of investigation involved torturing their subjects in ways that would make a Spanish inquisitor cringe and gag with nausea. They transplanted eye tissue, that's one, without anesthetizing, without anesthetizing the living donors. I won't go further because for reasons of financial ineptitude, I had to sell my book about the Nazi doctors. I'll buy it again when I'm rich. Now, this Jewish researcher, he arranged to have several sets of twins separated at birth and placed with families who differed in class and demeanor. Their development in these differing environments was followed under the guise of routine follow-up monitoring in the adoption process. 
the underlings of this Holocaust survivor mastermind were grad students or postdocs going to subjects' houses, filming them as they put them through your usual childhood inventory of skills and behavior. I say usual because I underwent therapy as a child, and the tests were very familiar to me. These underling researchers were keeping a secret because they knew that each solitary individual they were testing was actually an unwitting member of a matching set. They kept it secret from the adopted children and the adoptive parents. One woman, who looked disturbingly like a more cube-shaped Madeleine Albright, and who would only admit to having aided and abetted this study in the most minimal way, evaluated the ethical questions it might raise thus. See, this was the 50s and 60s, and we didn't know this was bad. Thin-lipped octogenarians note, bright red lipstick is a horrible choice. Oh, wait, that's bad. That's a bad thing to say, bagging on cubic Madeleine Albright's looks. Now I know better. So yeah, in the 50s and 60s, a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust could not know it was ethically atrocious to manipulate human beings by experimenting on them as if they were strains of wheat. We're civilized now, not like long ago. Long ago, we were brutes. Now we wear garments of woven plant fibers. We live in sophisticated communities, connected by technology. We trade with each other. We exchange currency tokens for a variety of goods. We enter into contracts of temporary servitude. We hold transcendent philosophies concerning love, art, and war. We are really something. We have rights because we are human. We extend rights to others. And we talk and talk, and we get our food from slaves. We poison our water supply. We rape and murder our children, and our children shoot us. And we give them top security clearance. We're civilized now, not like before. Finally, just as human history is about to be destroyed by human progress, humans have achieved a state of civilization, of humanity even. At this pit at <clears throat> At this pivotal juncture, perhaps we should take stock of what we have really learned. Each and every one of us, as far as I can judge from experience, is prone to the arrogance of believing ourselves neutral, innocent, capable of deeds untainted by impure motives. From the most ruthless dictator ruling with an iron hand to the most oppressed, dispossessed victim of ostracization and deprivation, we are each capable of negligence, rationalized destructiveness, and even outright cruelty, justified to ourselves by avoiding eye contact with our consciences. We keep the most unthinkable questions unsought. We keep them in our blind spot. But as the anonymous industrial poet says, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. We know that the Stanley Milgram experiment at Yale, where subjects were led to believe they were giving electric shocks to another participant in the study, as much as it was a study in deferring to authority, was itself an unethical authority to be deferred to. We are trapped. Now we know. Now we know. We sing the daily mantra. Now we know it's wrong to say this or that. Now we know that it's wrong to buy and sell people as property. Now we know that women have been kept under a crushing boot of patriarchy for centuries, exceptions notwithstanding, but nevertheless pointed to as the one that proves the rule.
Now we know it's not nice to persecute those who differ from the majority in one respect or another. Now we know that white European domination has been enforced with lore and science along with the guns and chains. Now we know. Now we know. It's an absurd refrain. Now we know the earth is not the center of the universe. Now we know the age and the nature of the sun. Now we know we belong to the kingdom of animals, the vertebrates, the mammals, the primates, the apes. Now we know. 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 Now we know the Nazis were bad. Back when the Nazis were just starting out, it was understandable not to know. But now we know. Except for the people right now who are Nazis, they don't seem to know. Now we know that considering some groups as divinely determined from birth to be contaminated and only worthy of the most filthy employment was wrong. It was understandable when the Vedas were passed down orally. It was understandable when Gandhi and Baba Saheb Ambedkar arrived to enlighten us. But now we know, except the hundreds of millions who don't know to this day, that there is no such thing as an untouchable. Except we used to know that the Vietnam War was bad. Now it's up for debate again. Maybe it was good after all. Maybe we just didn't try hard enough to make killing every Southeast Asian in sight a good thing. Let's look at it again. Maybe we can get the answer the new colonialists want. Everything old is new again. Except the hundreds of thousands of Jews who still believe we came to Palestine in peace and it was no harm, no foul, to take land from the people already there. They were Bedouin. They were nomads. They didn't own houses. This is my house now. Being a Bedouin means your house isn't a house, and it isn't yours. Except the people who believe our first black president was born in Africa, and the world's economies are run by the Rothschilds. Joe McCarthy was a hero, and various levels of melanin equate to various levels of intellectual ability. And the Middle Ages is a history of gallant white people on horses jousting for courtly love. All the things we know, all these ways we become enlightened, they're really contingent on the mood of the audience. And that's all popular opinion is. No truth is so valid that it can't be dismissed during a popular or ignored commission of a crime against humanity. We knew back when Nixon tried to cover up all his crimes that the president ought not to be above the law. Yet here we are. But now we know because we see. But now we see and now we don't. We're not the wise ape, the tool maker, the value ape. We're the magic ape. Now you see our rationality and compassion. Now you see our irrational hatred and arrogant cruelty. Now you see our self-recriminations. Now you see our self-justification. Now you see our Kelly and Brett Kavanaugh in their highest shrieking dudgeon. You got to read the room. And you got to push the window wider to let more light into the room. But the window always stays the same size when it moves to the left. The things on the right fall out of frame, and vice versa. We really are magic, because we never let any idea, good or bad, die completely away. It's not that there is no truth, it's that the truth is magic. Now you see it, now you don't. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! And now you know. Hey, uh, Jeff, uh, Flint Taylor's new book is uh, coming out, or it has come out, and it's called The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. He's going to be on our show in a couple of weeks, and I got to read you. He gave me an autographed copy of his book, and this is is, uh, Flint's inscription on the inside. 
This is God's favorite book. Prove me wrong. <laughs> is that awesome? Rockin'. I love that does guy. He, I love that guy. Does he give an opportunity for people to prove him wrong? I mean, <laughs> like, does he have a little, is there is there a website where you can go and like, you know, put your proof on, on the site, wait it, wait the, wait the evidence one way or another? If you want I mean, to start the FlintTaylorIsWrong.com website, that's totally up to you, Jeff. jeez. Oh, not another <laughs> thing for me to do and not get paid for. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Stay beautiful. Okay, you too. All of you and your friends. Thank you. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. Go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to donate right now to Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. And choose from newly redesigned WNUR stickers, T-shirts, hats, and hoodies. Or you can do your own show here on WNUR. Get all of that and the big mystery prize. Just go to WNUR.org and click on Donate. Now, the best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is to share This Is Hell online. We want to thank all the people who shared our interview with Christina Ward, author of American, American Advertising Cookbooks last week on how American food got fake and bad. Thanks to Howard Myra, the group Mac and Cheese, Astrid, Rich, Pete, Christina Ward herself, who writes Have a Listen, short version, I blame capitalism for destroying America's food system. Also, thanks for sharing our interview with uh, Christina. Goes to Julie, Marco, Nick, and Elizabeth. Other people who shared our show this week include Rob, Daniel, George, and Polly. We also got a lot of people who shared our interview with historian Kelly Carter Jackson on how slavery ended because black abolitionists were threatening and employing direct force, not because they were saved by some whitey abolitionist insisting on nonviolence. Thanks for sharing that interview. Goes to Matthew, who comments on the interview. This is a really interesting interview. It covers topics, abolition, political violence, that I've only been exposed to rarely and superficially with a lot of interesting nuance. This is a great example of why I love This Is Hell. And if you love This Is Hell, go to WNUR.org right now and click on Donate Now to donate now to This Is Hell. Thanks, Matthew, and thanks for sharing that interview. Also goes to the group uh, United States of Africa, Dennis, Angela, the group The New Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, Alice, Jeff with one F, and Gorilla Gramophonics. And finally, thanks to Moshe, Jeffrey, Shane, Anarchimedia, and Jen for sharing This Is Hell. And if all of you could now go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to Donate Now to Chicago Sound Experiment, that would be really fantastic. All right. Uh, don't forget to hang out with us on Wednesdays at Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge. This Is Hell does a weekly meet and greet, more like a drinking think, over at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. If you've dropped by there and you've gotten free books and you've received free subvertising stickers, show your support for that free stuff and show your appreciation of hanging out with me and watching me get drunk. Go to... WNUR.org. Click on Donate Now to Donate Now. Alex, who do we have on next week's show? I don't know, but if I asked you to be on next week's show and you haven't written me back, uh, please write me back. Uh, <laughs> although I will say a couple more thanks from donors. Uh, thank you, Blanche V. Thank you, Anonymous, again. Thank you, Ricardo H. And thank you, Mark G. We want to really thank the deep pockets of Anonymous this uh, phonathon. They've really been doing a great job of donating to this week's show. This is hell where the coolest musicians get their news. We want to thank this week's guest, Jacobin Magazine staff writer Megan Day, who explained Democratic, the DSA and democratic socialism to us here on This Is Hell. If you appreciate 
If you like that uh, conversation, go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to show your support. Thanks to historian Greg Grandin, author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Thanks to writer and educator Sidney K. Reddy, who wrote the essay, We Don't Need No Education, De-Schooling as an Abolitionist Practice. And de-schooling is a topic you're not going to hear anywhere else on the radio dial except for here on WNUR, and this is hell. So go to WNUR.org and click on Donate Now to donate now. Also, thanks to social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, emergent strategist, doula, healer, auntie extraordinaire, and pleasure activist Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Again, a topic you won't hear discussed anywhere else but here on This Is Hell. And this week's Hangover Cure was do not believe that wine, that beer before wine will make you fine. That's this week's Hangover Cure. It is not true that beer before wine will make you fine. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. I want to thank Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks for uh, Jonah for dropping by and watching us do this idiocy. This is not the media. This is hell. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you here on This Is Hell. That's by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishell, following us at This Is Hell Radio on Twitter, or sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Except for uh-huh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. All right, for Wesley. We got your back, Wesley. So stay cool. This is, you're listening to WNUR 89.3.